Before 9-11, few Americans believed that what happens beyond our borders affects their lives. We were a nation that was focused on ourselves, constantly looking in the mirror rather than looking out the window. But on September 11th, our perspective changed uh, rather abruptly. A few weeks later, a half a dozen letters uh, made threats of biological or chemical weapons or a deadly vial in a backpack much more real to every American. We were forced to come face to face with our worst fears. We saw the kind of death and destruction that could be wielded by religious fundamentalism, anti-Americanism, and terrorists fueled by pure hatred. And the question is, are we going to finally begin to attempt to meet that threat, along with the threat of chemical and biological weapons that might find their way from Russia to the so-called rogues? That item, that, that issue, uh, would not be a determinative issue in terms of what our strategic um, uh, agreements and you know doctrine is relative to the United States smallpox. Um, I have done uh, as much um, work through the Intelligence Committee and my capacity as chairman of this committee and heading up the Terrorism Subcommittee and Judiciary Committee to try to make sure I understood exactly what we were talking about with regard to smallpox vaccine. <coughs> smallpox, excuse me, the disease. <clears throat> and it is true, there are only two places we know for certain where it is. There's a third country potentially may have um, the smallpox virus. Um, one of the elements of the cooperation that we're getting from Russia is there has been absolute sharing of that information by the Russians into where it's located, how it's stored, how it's secured, and with our some of our assistance, quite frankly. And so the idea that Russia and or the United States would uh, launch an attack based on smallpox, uh, I think, is, is, is not thinkable. Um, conversely, uh, the issue then becomes, though, what about someone else getting their hands on that material? Material, 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 material. The whole subject of um, smallpox inoculations. Yeah. 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 Which um, has been recommended for some military personnel, for some healthcare personnel. Do you think that all Americans should be inoculated? I will have a detailed plan that the American people will, will digest. Uh, I, I think it ought to be a voluntary plan. In other words, I don't think people ought to be compelled uh, to make the decision which they think is best for their family. It, what's going to be very important is for us to make sure that there's ample information for people to make a, a, a wise decision. How would you feel about your daughters being inoculated? If um, the vaccine were available, which I think it will be, I would feel like that was certainly safe for them to do. All of us were. I know there's a slight risk. Uh, that's what people will weigh when they make the decision whether or not to have their children vaccinated. What's the drug industry's role in your efforts fighting bioterrorism? Major, in fact, huge. It, it, it's important to the point where the federal government cannot do it alone. Begun inoculating troops and first responders against smallpox and are deploying the nation's first early warning network of sensors to detect biological attack. We're keeping them on the run. 
One by one, the terrorists are learning the meaning of American justice. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. On the last episode of the Smallpox series, episode three, we left off around October 2002. And about now is the anniversary of the 2001 anthrax attacks. This month, October 2002, is the one-year anniversary of the first biological, quote-unquote, terrorist attack on the United States. And even though the FBI knew almost a year ago that the anthrax that was sent through the U.S. mail system and that did infect and kill five people was the AIM strain a strain that was kept as a weapon and developed and weaponized by the U.S. military, a signature of the U.S. bioweapons program. The Bush administration continued to tie Iraq with biological weapons and use the hysteria of a biological terrorist attack as part of their propaganda campaign for the Iraq war. So a great deal of this episode will be focused on how the Bush administration weaved in not just the 2001 anthrax attacks and used WMD as a metonym for anthrax, but also chose smallpox as the big enchilada, the endgame scenario, that if Iraq had smallpox, all bets were off. It didn't matter. We needed to invade. And setting the stage for that, let's start October 2002, jumping right off where we left off in last month's episode. On Halloween, Halloween Day. Now, although I have already told you about plenty of articles already that have pushed back against the idea of mass vaccination for smallpox. Um, most of these sort of reference, you know, health officials, or they were done on some of these health panels even that were commissioned by the CDC. But this is a rare occurrence of an actual editorial by an LA Times editorialist on October 31st, 2002, where he's sort of just zooming out a little bit from the whole thing and reminding people of this very basic premise. And this is the headline. The greatest risk of smallpox is fear. Pretty much sums it up right there. Now he points out, you know, even though he's taking this the stance that the greatest risk is fear, he references this. The risk of smallpox appearing in the United States is still theoretical, but ever since Ken Alabeck, the former deputy director of Biopreparat, 
the Soviet biological weapons apparatus freely admitted to extensive amounts of smallpox existing in the Soviet Union, there is every reason to believe that some of the stockpiled virus may have found its way into the hands of rogue dictators or terrorists. And smallpox may be aerosolized. I mean, so I, the reason I'm mentioning this is because even while the article is an important one and it's pushing back against this, it still just completely falls for this concept. I mean, on one hand, this guy, Mark Siegel's editorialist, understands that this stuff is fear-mongering. The Bush administration is fear-mongering us. But yet, he doesn't seem to question something like this. Could this also be part of the fear-mongering, this Ken Alibic insert? I mean, I, I'm saying yes, it is, obviously, but this author you know, doesn't seem to question that. And this is also interesting, too, even though this guy's pushing back against it. He says, admittedly, as the risk of war, talking about the Iraq war, which hasn't happened yet, and its associated risk of bioweaponry, implying that he's just buying into the concept that Iraq probably has bioweapons, increases, it is becoming more reasonable to vaccinate healthcare workers and emergency responders. Yet, for the protection of the public at large, the push must be to complete the research underway on a safer vaccine. I mean, it's just so crazy to be of both minds that he's just completely falling for this Iraq WMDs thing, but saying, hey, hold on, put the brakes on here. I mean, he ends it uh, with like a decent, you know, I guess statement. And that's basically vaccination may be useful to treat fear, but not when there are such side effects. Because he goes into all the, you know, bad side effects that can occur from smallpox. It is reasonable to accumulate ready supplies of this older vaccine, but it is not reasonable to use these supplies on the public now. I mean, anyways, that's one of the only editorials that's come out that I have found in this sort of run-up to the actual real rollout of the plan. Even though there's been all this buildup the whole time since 9-11, this rollout happening now, this is one of the only editorials pushing back on it. And it still falls for so many aspects of Bush-era propaganda simultaneously. Now, when I said the Newsweek cover story was one of the more important blasts for fear-mongering about smallpox and linking it to Iraq, uh, the next most important story comes in the form of an actual quote-unquote intelligence report that no one, at least in the public, has actually ever gotten to see. It was a leak, leaked to the Washington Post specifically to a reporter who's gotten some accolades, actually, uh, because of his Snowden involvement, Barton Gelman of the Washington Post. He was the conduit for basically an exclusive leak uh, of an intelligence report by the CIA saying that four nations were thought to possess smallpox. Iraq and North Korea were two of the nations, officials say. How many times was Iraq mentioned in this Barton Gelman propaganda piece? Iraq was mentioned 21 times. So this is officially the first time the CIA has tried to launder intelligence through the U.S. media having specifically to do with smallpox in a very open fashion. While the CIA may have been behind the previous attempts, you know, to launder some of this stuff, maybe even the Ken Alibic stuff, who knows what other stuff, this is openly in the article saying it comes from the CIA, basically anonymous CIA officials. Iraq and North Korea possess smallpox, intelligence indicates. Wall Street Journal, November 5th, 2002. 
U.S. intelligence officials believe that four countries besides the U.S. possess stockpiles of the smallpox virus, fueling the already furious debate over the Bush administration's long-awaited vaccination policy. A U.S. intelligence official confirmed that the CIA concluded last spring that Iraq, Russia, France, and North Korea are likely to possess stocks of smallpox. They said they're less certain about North Korea, more certain about Iraq and Russia. Well, one of the wild cards in that mix is France. That's actually the very first time I've ever hearing that. The official wouldn't describe the evidence suggesting that France, a U.S. ally, has the virus. The news that France is on the list could be an embarrassment for the Bush administration amid tense negotiations with France and other U.N. Security Council members over the possibility with war with Iraq. Then it mentions how the intelligence report was described in the Washington Post. That's where it was first reported. The report adds to the pressure faced by the Bush administration to decide how broadly smallpox vaccines should be offered to the U.S. populations. Officials must balance in the potential danger of an attack used against the negative side effects the vaccine itself can cause. The CIA also found evidence in Afghanistan that al-Qaeda was seeking smallpox for possible use as a biological agent. We think it is unlikely that al-Qaeda actually has smallpox, but that doesn't mean they don't still have an interest in trying to get it, the U.S. intelligence official said. It remains to be seen whether publication of the report will increase pressure to vaccinate more members of the U.S. population in advance of an attack. I mean, Jesus Christ, the language on that. Officials noted that the information already had been circulated internally. For months, Bush administration officials have been locked in a debate over how many people should be offered the vaccine. Dick Cheney is said to be in favor of a broader vaccination policy. I mean, this is honestly fucking nuts how much of this history has been lost the more that I read this. But let's go to the actual Barton Gelman scoop. Let's go to that, about this internal report that apparently had been circulating for so long. A Bush, a Bush administration intelligence review has concluded that four nations, including Iraq and North Korea, possess covert stockpiles of smallpox pathogen. Records and operation manuals captured this year in Afghanistan and elsewhere, they said, also disclosed that Osama bin Laden devoted money and personnel to pursue smallpox. These, asses these assessments, though unrelated, <laughs> have helped drive the U.S. government to the brink of a mass vaccination campaign that would be among the costliest steps financially and politically in a year-long effort to safeguard the U.S. homeland. I mean... Just let that sink in for a second. Barton Gelman is actually, this is the one true thing, you know, that's not super sketchy from his article that's being transparently discussed. This would be among the costliest steps financially and politically. I mean, the fact that the Bush administration was trying to get mandatory vaccination or preventative mandatory vaccination for healthcare and military is absolutely nuts. And costly financially, one of the, yeah, it would have been. I mean, they already did. They spent pretty much a billion dollars on this. Just this smallpox vaccine contract. It has been left to President Bush to resolve a deadlock among his advisors. Vice President Cheney is said by participants in the debate to be pressing for rapid, universal inoculation, while Tommy Thompson prefers a voluntary program that would wait at least two years for an improved vaccine. Well, does that mean that Cheney was actually pushing for mandatory, universal 
That kind of sounds like a, a different a code word for mandatory. Pretty crazy that Cheney was the one pushing for mandatory smallpox vaccination. In public, the White House has described its smallpox concerns in only hypothetical terms. And until now, the gravity of its assessment has not been known. Bush administration officials did not share their evidence with a panel of outside scientists established to advise them on smallpox. Some officials said the reticence results from unwillingness to compromise intelligence sources. Others cited fear of provoking public demands for action the government is not yet prepared to take. So there's not even like an excuse in there being like, and the third option, maybe the Bush administration is just cooking all this shit up so they can do more shit after the war on terror and 9-11. I mean, that would be one of the more obvious things, right? Now, this is interesting. This shows the internal political war that was happening. Um, the report itself, I mean, is not that interesting. It's all a lot of the stuff I've been already telling you about. The same backstories about why they think Iraq has it. Um, but just keep in mind that Iraq was mentioned 21 times in this article, in this big Washington Post article by Barton Gelman, having to do with smallpox. Now, he keeps quoting anonymous senior administration officials. So he's getting direct line from the Bush administration. So this is pretty much like a Bush administration press release, if you will. Bush administration officials with central roles in smallpox policy said the government commissioned advisory committee on immunization practices was unequipped for its ostensible role of balancing the risks of vaccination against the risks of a smallpox attack. They give the scientific assessment of what the risks of vaccination are, a senior administration official said, an anonymous one. They do not have the same amount of information that has circulated around this issue here. Those who disclosed the intelligence assessment described above speak on a condition of anonymity. They were not authorized by the White House to do so. Now, he gets a quote from Scooter Libby, actually, directly on the record, talking about how Dick Cheney was energized about smallpox by a videotape and briefing shortly after 9-11 in a war game called Dark Winter. It's a dramatic briefing, Scooter Libby said, referring to Dark Winter. But we were on this road already, Libby said. And he goes on to say that Cheney favors, quote, a forward-leaning position on protecting Americans from this threat, but declined to describe his advice to the president. So what, did, what does this actually mean that I just said? Well, what I just said is that people inside the Bush administration were sort of going anonymous in this Washington Post article saying that the advisory committees that the CDC had commissioned basically were just being like overly cautious and saying that they're not privy to the same information we have about, you know, Iraq allegedly having smallpox. Otherwise, they would, they would recommend we give everyone mass vaccination, mandatory vaccination right away. So that's what it seems like the internal war is about. And, the, and basically this administration official, the article sort of goes on to say that the Bush administration and the people who are advising him, like Cheney, who want mandatory vaccination, could just flip the switch any time. They don't have to listen to Tommy Thompson. They basically will ultimately order him what to do, and then he'll be blamed for it, even take the political fallout for it. That's sort of how it's spinning it in here. But in general, this basically is just a full-on propaganda piece about Iraq and Al-Qaeda having potentially uh, a smallpox but a new narrative, a new message is sort of starting to form 
in the media's coverage about this, and that new narrative is basically that the Bush administration is ultimately in charge of this, and they're going to make the ultimate decision, and that they're just going to weigh uh, the advice of the advisors internally, and that Cheney himself again comes into frame as being someone who was strongly advocating for mandatory vaccination, even though they never use that phrase exactly, they're sort of dancing around it. That's basically what they're saying, that Cheney was on that side of the debate internally. It says that Vice President Dick Cheney, a former defense secretary, is among those who have pushed more aggressively for protecting the military and the general civilian population against smallpox attack. This is from an Associated Press article from November 15, 2002, Bush nears smallpox vaccine approval. President Bush is inclined to approve a blueprint for vaccinating some U.S. troops against smallpox as he moves toward a decision on a larger plan to protect the general public against an act of bioterrorism. Bush was nearing a decision on shots to protect military personnel from a disease that was eradicated two decades ago, but could return in biowarfare. At the same time, officials said the president was comfortable with proposals to eventually offer the smallpox vaccine to all Americans, beginning with healthcare workers. He has not, however, signed off on key details for a final plan. Bush's top bioterrorism aides agree the vaccine should eventually be offered to the general public. At issue is how fast to move ahead. Under the proposal for the military, the first personnel to receive the vaccine would be first responders. As many as 500,000 troops might eventually be inoculated. Bush is moving forward toward decisions as possible war looms with Iraq, which U.S. intelligence officials believe has smallpox samples. Amid heightened concerns, the Pentagon is pushing to provide every available form of protection for troops who might be exposed to germ weapons in Iraq or elsewhere. Unlike the civilian vaccination program, which would be entirely voluntary, troops would be required to give the shots. Some in the White House favor moving ahead more quickly, offering it to the general public even before FDA approval. Bush has postponed announcing a decision on vaccinating the civilian population until after he returns from a NATO summit in Europe on November 23rd. Aides said they did not know when he would disclose his decision on vaccinating the troops. I mean, it's interesting that this 500,000 number keeps coming up. Well, let's see how many troops were actually sent to Iraq in the initial wave of the invasion. Oh, it's actually far more troops than were deployed to Iraq. It seems that there were only around, it seems like maximum 175,000, 200,000 troops in the first two or three years of the Iraq war. I wonder about after the surge, maybe it went to 500,000 after that. I, I don't know exactly. I'd have to look. But why 500,000? What is this number? Why? Is this how many troops they wanted to have on the ready for more future war on terror wars? You know, like the f seven countries in five years plan? Now, it would take Bush actually until the 13th of December 2002 to make his first official announcement on the smallpox vaccine program. So instead of saying anything official about it, in the meantime, they trotted out another official to sort of blast out a bunch of other random shit. And this official was Dr. Anthony Fauci. C-SPAN describes his appearance on November 29, 2002. Biological attack preparedness. 
Anthony Fauci talked about the capabilities of the U.S. to prevent and respond to a biological attack. And he wasn't there to just talk about anthrax or all biological weapons. Obviously, he was being trotted out at this time for a very long-form C-SPAN appearance, Q&A, responded to live phone calls, etc., to you know, reinforce and bolster this smallpox rollout and preparation for Bush's announcement. So I'm going to play you a bunch of clips from this Anthony Fauci appearance. This appearance is rather long, and I initially had about 20 minutes worth of clips from it, uh, from Fauci to play you, but I'm going to condense it down from there because I still have a lot more to cover. But if you'd like to hear this whole C-SPAN appearance, you can look it up on C-SPAN, November 29th, Biological Attack Preparedness. How prepared is America in case there were another bioterrorist attack? Well, you have to look at preparedness at several standpoints. One is the preparedness to being able to thwart an attack. The other one is preparedness with regard to how you might respond. We at the National Institutes of Health and in the Department of Health and Human Services are responsible for how one can respond to attacks, for example, of bioterror. Do we have vaccinations? Do we have diagnostics that are rapid and efficient? Do we have therapies to respond to an attack against any of a number of microbes? That's a part of the broad range of homeland defense, because when you look at homeland defense, you've got to look at border security, airport security. A sliver of that pie, about 16, 17 percent of it, is the biodefense, and that's what we at the NIH and our sister agencies in the Department of Health and Human Services are responsible for. I would say that literally as the weeks and months go by, we are better and better prepared. And I think the classic example was that less than a year ago, we had only 15 million doses of smallpox vaccine that were available in case we needed to use them in an emergency. And right now, today, in an emergency, we have enough vaccine to vaccinate every man, woman, and child in this country, and then some, which is really, a, I think, a major uh, a positive advance towards the preparedness that we hope to be at within a reasonable period of time. You talk about bioterrorism. What agents is the Institute's most concerned about? Well, the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and ourselves and others have put together what's called Category A, and they consist of six agents or classes of agents that on the basis of the potential impact of the agents, the potential uh, total uh, 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 response that we might have are considered high priority. And those are smallpox, anthrax, botulism toxin, tularemia plague, and what we call the hemorrhagic fevers, particularly something like Ebola or Lassa fever. So most of the efforts your institute is on combating those six agents? Those six plus, uh, you, you can't, you got to be careful that you don't guess wrong because then you're, in, then you're in some difficulty. So that's the highest priority agents. Then we have what's called category B and category C. Right now, to develop both the current generation of smallpox vaccine in numbers enough to be able to distribute as well as a new generation for smallpox and as well as our anthrax vaccine work and Ebola. I mean, just flat out, I'll, I'll just say that the CDC just doesn't have any credibility whatsoever based on the mere fact that they just got so into this bioterrorism boon. I mean, it just seems like a way to just throw money at the biodefense industry. Studying Ebola and smallpox and all this stuff, I mean, it is really gross how much of the CDC was basically involved in our biological weapons program under the guise of biodefense. I mean, of all the defense industries or defense sectors that got 
you know, billions of dollars after 9-11 as a result of terrorism, hype, and hysteria, it seemed like the biodefense industry was one of the biggest ones that benefited the most. For fiscal year 2003, how much will be spent on bioterrorism research and develop or the development of a the totality of it for the fiscal 2003 budget including facilities is 1.748 billion dollars and that's really quite impressive and important because the increase in the president's budget from 2002 to 2003 is 1.5 billion dollars which is the largest single increase literally in the history of the NIH for any discipline or any institute did you hear what he just said this is the biggest increase in the NIH's history monetarily for anything. Which of that money that's set aside, where does the, the bulk of that money go towards? Well, the bulk of the money comes to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, but the bulk of it goes to the execution and implementation of a strategic plan that involves the fundamental basic research, which is always the underpinning of what we do. The development of vaccines, therapeutics and diagnostics, clinical research networks, and finally the facilities, the specialized facilities that you need in order to work with these microbes, both for the safety of the investigators and the safety of the surrounding community. How much of that, an increase in budget, if any, did you receive after the September 11th uh, related, or I should say the anthrax attacks last year? Well, the budget process as it evolves took place following the September the 11th and anthrax attacks in the fall. We start to build our budget towards the end of the calendar year for the following year. So the budget building process took place in November. So that's obvious that they got this huge bounce in their budget as a result of the 9-11 attacks and the anthrax attacks. And Fauci is basically just blatantly admitting that right now. I, I, I read that uh, first responders are going to be the first in line to receive smallpox vaccine. Um, and as a nurse, I, I, I have no problem receiving that. I've had three in my life. I've been a nurse quite a long time and I'm not really fearful of vaccination at all for myself and for most people. I get people to understand that if there is a need to do this, that, that it's, it's, um, it's going to be a relatively safe, um, I believe, a, a relatively safe project. Caller, thank you. Yes, you make some very good points. Is it just me or does that caller maybe sound like they were a plant? She's gotten the smallpox vaccine several times. It doesn't even make sense, actually. I didn't realize that you even need to get it multiple times, and she thinks that it's going to be a really safe project. It just seems like an odd thing for a random caller to say, saying that she's a nurse. Who is this caller? It honestly seems a little sus to me. I'm just going to say it. And Fauci continues on to answer her question by just sort of steering to this idea of biodefense. First of all, let's address your first point about preparedness at the state and local and community level. That's a very important part of the entire process of biodefense, as important as the research that we do. And for that reason, the president, through Secretary Thompson, has allocated over a billion dollars just this year to go to the state and local health authorities to put them in a state of preparedness precisely for the reason that you brought up that many of the local communities are not yet prepared to respond to a bioterrorist attack. And for that reason, we need to continue to implement that kind of increase in preparedness. I mean, I'll give Fauci this. He's just spewing a bunch of bullshit. He sounds like a very, you know, slick salesman in a way. He can just sort of pontificate and ramble on and really not be saying anything. 
I could see why he's been in that position and been sort of a PR guy for this shit for so long. He can just sort of just ramble on and on and, and not really say anything specific and make it seem like this isn't just an arm of the Bush administration's fear-mongering campaign to hype up terrorism. Because at this point, Fauci is really acting as that, 100%. But he's here to sort of try to act as if he's like here for public health reasons, to give advice out and explain the smallpox program. To the smallpox vaccination program, you're right, there are several options in front of the president right now. He'll be making his decision within a very short period of time, we all believe. One of the options is to vaccinate in the first stage what we call the smallpox response team and emergency workers. That includes about 500,000 people. The second possible wave, should the president decide to go in that direction, would be up to 10 million people, including a variety of health workers. And as a nurse, if you're in the right setting, you might be one that, that could have the vaccine offered to you on a voluntary basis. Well, the decision hasn't been made yet, and it seems like Cheney was advocating for mandatory vaccination. So why is Fauci saying that it could be on a voluntary basis? But notice that he's actually saying 10 million healthcare workers. This is a number that we haven't heard before. So he's getting this number from somewhere. So we've heard the 500,000 number of troops before that are going to get the smallpox vaccine. But this is the first time that I can remember in the research that I did for this podcast, seeing the number 10 million. So Fauci might be speaking out of turn on both accounts there. But notice that he's saying that the president will make his decision very soon. That the potential and the projected toxicities are exactly the same as they were decades ago when we routinely vaccinated individuals. About 15 life-threatening complications per million vaccinations and up to one to two deaths per million. We knew about that decades ago, but that was accepted as an integral part of the risk you take because smallpox was indeed endemic in other, many other parts. of This is part of what I mean by a slick salesman. I mean, here he is saying that downplaying, essentially, that of these side effects and agreeing with this caller, who frankly seems like a plant, saying that you think it's rather safe, when Fauci has said in other quotes that I've read to you in this podcast so far that the vaccine is extremely dangerous. In fact, he's actually said it's the most dangerous vaccine that there is. I mean, very mixed messages to say the least. But he's able to make it sound convincing here. He's able to sort of sell it because he's a good talker. So right now, when you, when you try to, as we say, roll out or get the American people to understand the risk benefits, if and when the vaccine is made available to them, you've got to get them to appreciate that although these adverse events are rare, when they occur, they can be serious. And on that basis, people would hopefully make an informed decision. Kirkland, Washington. Notice he doesn't specify there that some of the really adverse side effects are actually death. That's a very you know, straightforward thing to say, and that's been well documented. Why doesn't he say that there? I guess you answered to the last caller that this smallpox vaccine is not going to have any more adverse effects than the earlier one, but is it going to be improved upon in the second vaccine that you might release? Dr. Fauci. Well, a couple of quick responses. With regard to smallpox vaccine, we are certainly uh, aiming, and that's some of the research efforts that I just mentioned a, a little bit ago, to developing a safer vaccine. We certainly know the vaccine that we have for smallpox now is quite effective, but we're trying to get a vaccine that even goes beyond those very rare 
adverse events to the point where we have virtually no adverse events. That's possible, but we're not going to have that tomorrow. Notice again, he just says adverse events. He doesn't say deaths. And most people consider having like a giant rash and very sore arm and like a skin infection an adverse event. And pretty much almost everybody who gets the smallpox vaccine gets that. So he's being very vague intentionally, I feel here, because again, he's just trying to smooth a lot of these things over. And he does mention and allude to the, the studies that they're conducting. But what he doesn't say there about the studies they're conducting to try to find new vaccines that have less adverse events is that they're doing them on monkeys. And that part of that study involved giving monkeys millions of times the normal like viral load of smallpox that would, it would take to infect somebody in the lab, as I had told you earlier. That was part of the experiment to try to find, quote-unquote, safer vaccines for smallpox. On one hand, there are likely more people with immunosuppressed states today in 2002 than there were at the last time we looked at a large cohort of people, which was 1968. That is likely going to be balanced by the fact that the screening capability and the intention played to what we call exclusion criteria would be much more stringent than they were at the time that vaccines were given routinely. That answer was in response to a caller asking about if they're going to screen for HIV or people with immunosuppressed um, disorders. Because people who had HIV or who had some kind of immuno-autoimmune disorder uh, could have a deadly reaction to the smallpox vaccine. And again, Fauci is avoiding outright just using the term death or fatal. And I find that fascinating because he has outright used those terms before when talking about it. And I think this indicates that he was given sort of a, you know, some talking points or some notes to not use those terms, to specifically avoid using those terms. And a caller calls in to tell her own story that was told to her by her mother, um, where she had a quote unquote adverse event uh, from the smallpox vaccine a.k.a. almost dying when she was a really small child. Nell, New Jersey, our line for Republicans. Yes, hello, doctor. Uh, I have a question. Um, my mother tells me that when I was a baby, I almost died from the smallpox vaccination, and now I'm 50 years old. Could it be that my body has changed and I may be able to handle it better? Uh, well, you'd have to try and find out, ma'am, what what was the reaction that you had? In other words, did you, did you have eczema as a child and have a disseminated reaction to the smallpox? If you even had a history of eczema, even now, decades later, you would be someone who should not be vaccinated unless there were an attack and you were, in fact, had contact or were suspected of having contact with a smallpox, uh, with an individual who had smallpox. Um, I mean, again, fascinating that he's not just saying outright, if you have even eczema, if you have these specific conditions, you could have a fatal reaction to the vaccine. You could die. He's not saying that. I mean, it's fascinating because I think that that's, you know, he claims that there needs to be a way to make an informed decision based on your health history. And they're going to give people the opportunity to do that. But yet here he is avoiding using very obvious terminology. You know, he's not, he's sort of answering the caller's question by assuming that maybe she had eczema and that's how she almost died. But he's not saying, 
Oh, and by the way, yeah, anybody who has eczema, you you probably should not take this. He's actually saying that you should take it if there is a smallpox outbreak. He's not saying, but you could you could die from it. You can have an adverse reaction from it. So it's a gamble. Um, he's avoiding saying that kind of stuff, I think. This next clip is particularly disgusting because it shows how sort of excited Fauci is about this biodefense industry that he's part of. And he sort of refers to um, the menu of things that they deal in, almost like as if he's a chef in a restaurant. Of How much of the right. research that you do deals with someone who gets these, either small parks or anthrax? Or- uh, we, we have, uh, I would say right now it's about 50-50 that we have our, 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 uh, our activities, not just for smallpox. If you look at, for example, the menu of what we do with regard to biodefense in general, and that smallpox is a good prototype, but it goes beyond smallpox. You talk about the basic research, which is about... 500 million out of the 1.7 billion dollars if you do vaccines and drugs you got about another 400 to 500 million you got infrastructure about 500 million and then you got clinical research about 400 million so it's about 25 to 30 percent of the whole biodefense research is involved in that now this is i think probably one of the craziest single quotes from fauci that i've ever heard after you know, finding out so much more about the U.S.'s own quote-unquote biodefense industry, a.k.a. our biological weapons, R&D, that's sort of done, split between Pentagon, DARPA, and the CDC and the NIH. And just listen to how excited Fauci sounds when he's asked a question that, in some ways, is kind of almost meant to be a little revealing. I don't think this C-SPAN reporter, again, was being adversarial, but he was sort of I think, you know, it's kind of almost like a trap question in the sense that it's like you're not supposed to lean into it as much as Fauci does here when he's asked about the pharmaceutical industry's role in the biodefense sector. Listen to the way Fauci responds. And then I promise this is the last Fauci clip. What's the drug industry's role in your efforts in fighting fighting bioterrorism? Major. In fact, huge. It's important to the point where the federal government cannot do it alone and the biotechnology and pharmaceutical industry cannot do it alone if ever there was a a need for that synergy that you have between the private enterprise in the form of industry and academia and the federal government it's in biodefense because in order to get the concepts and the basic research that the nih does so well and rapidly translate that to a definable endpoint like a product you're going to need a very close collaboration and inter action with industry so it is indispensable and what exactly does the industry provide in that collaboration they have enormous capability of production and development i mean that's one of the reasons why this is such a great country we have industry that does it like no other country in the world can do it and that's that's even more so with the pharmaceutical industry on december 2nd 2002 an article runs in Reuters, UK to vaccinate health workers against smallpox. By the end of next month, Britain plans to have around 350 health workers vaccinated against smallpox as a precaution against a deliberate release of the deadly virus. Although there is, quote, no evidence of a specific threat, unquote, the government wants to ensure the NHS can deal effectively with a potential smallpox emergency. 
As part of an interim plan of action, the government will establish 12 regional smallpox response groups consisting of infectious disease doctors and pediatricians, public health physicians, microbiologists, nurses, and occupational health staff, Health Minister John Hetton said in a written parliamentary statement on Monday. So again, very interesting that one of the other nations that joined us in the fight in Iraq is also sort of hyping up their official personnel into thinking that smallpox could be a possibility. I mean, it also does seem like this is sort of kind of trying to plant the seeds that Iraq might retaliate to an attack by unleashing smallpox. On December 3rd, 2002, in the New York Times, Judith Miller has another article, this time a pretty strong propaganda article that makes it seem as if the CIA is in earnest trying to find proof that smallpox was in the hands of Iraq. The article is titled, CIA Hunts Iraq Tie to Soviet Smallpox. About half of the article quotes, again, Alan P. Zelikoff, the doctor who seeded this Russian biolab smallpox accidental release story. Like literally half the article is just leaning on that. But there's somewhere buried in the article an interesting quote from none other than David Kelly, who previous to this uh, podcast series I'd already known was in contact with Judith Miller pretty much right up until his death, his quote-unquote suicide. Uh, David Kelly, who's a former UN weapons inspector in Iraq, uh, is quoted in this article. He gave Judith Miller a quote saying that there was a resurgence of interest in the smallpox vaccine in Iraq in 1990, but we have never known why. So it's interesting that David Kelly was basically one of the whistleblowers who tried to say that this, you know, rush to war was fraudulent and that, you know, they were trying to fudge the intelligence on the weapons inspections. Here he is being used in a Judith Miller article as, you know, kind of an expert voice to make it seem like Iraq has smallpox. The CIA is investigating an informant's accusation that Iraq obtained a particularly virulent strain of smallpox from a Russian scientist who worked in a smallpox lab in Moscow during Soviet times, senior American officials and foreign scientists say. The officials said several American scientists were told in August that Iraq might have obtained the mysterious strain from Nelja and Mosteva, a virologist who worked for more than 30 years at the Research Institute for Viral Preparations in Moscow before her death two years ago. The information came to the American government from an informant whose identity has not been disclosed. The CIA considered the information reliable enough that President Bush was briefed about its implications. The attempt to verify information is continuing. I mean, this is just straight up, you know, Bush-era WMD's war on terror propaganda, but again, lost history, memory hold, uh, war on terror propaganda. I mean, this is textbooked as it, as it comes, the, the wording even in this Judith Miller article. The attempt to verify the information is continuing, you know, uh, an American government informant whose identity has not been disclosed. I mean, this is just such shady shit. But here's where it gets uh, crazier, and I think this is what's specific about this new supposed CIA investigation into this. You know, it's not so much an investigation, I think, as it's just like a CIA campaign to propagandize the people reading this article. Judith Miller talks about this Russian scientist, Dr. Maltseva, 
And she says that the institute where she worked housed what Russia said was its entire national collection of 120 strains of smallpox. Some experts, some experts fear that she may have provided the Iraqis with a version that could be resistant to vaccines and could be more easily transmitted as a biological weapon. The possibility that Iraq possesses this strain is one of several factors that has complicated Mr. Bush's decision, expected this week, about how many Americans should be vaccinated against smallpox, a disease that was officially eradicated in 1980. So many crazy implications there, specifically that this, I guess what's new about this new propaganda insert that Judith Miller is relaying, is that they're saying that Iraq might actually have one of these strains that is resistant to vaccines, and that somehow the Soviet Union had now 120 different strains. You know, not only do they have a thousand tons, they have 120 strains of smallpox that are resistant to vaccines. I mean, this is, it just gets more and more elaborate, this myth. Now, it's right at the end of 2002 that I believe things started to go really sour, and the cracks started to grow in terms of this being basically a facade. It wasn't for real even though this was meant to seem for real. After all, they did spend a half a billion dollars on new stockpiles of smallpox vaccine. On December 3rd, 2002, the LA Times runs an article that sort of reveals what was happening between states and the federal government in terms of this rollout. The article's called Smallpox Readiness Plan Detailed. LA County initially re- will request 20,000 doses of vaccine, mostly for emergency healthcare workers. Critics say far more is needed. LA County is requesting 20,000 doses of smallpox vaccine to inoculate emergency healthcare workers as well as some police officers and firefighters in the first phase of a national effort against possible bioterrorism, health officials said Monday. The county is finalizing a plan that must be submitted to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention by Monday. Every state must prepare a similar proposal, along with L.A. County, New York City, and Chicago because of their size. The California Department of Health Services is requesting 40 to 50,000 doses for areas outside of L.A. County. While the county did not give a firm timetable for vaccinations to begin, the speed with which the CDC has demanded a plan, indicates impending action, said Dr. Jonathan Fielding, Director of Public Health for LA's County Department of Health. The idea is to make sure that the disease does not infect healthcare providers. Now, here's the revealing thing from this article, is the speed with which the CDC has demanded a plan indicates impending action. Now, it does appear that this manual was distributed to state governments just uh, one month earlier, previous to this, and they're already demanding them to send in basically their plan by Monday. Now, this article, December 3rd, 2002. Let's see when Monday was. It was a Tuesday. So this proposal would have had to have been submitted by, according to this article, December 10th, 2002. Okay. So December 10th, 2002, is when they wanted these states to submit their proposal. That's giving them literally less than a month uh, from the timeline of when this manual got released to the states. So why would they give them so little time? Well, this article seems to imply, well, this 
This indicates the seriousness of the plan. The speed with which the CDC has demanded a plan indicates impending action. Um, what does that mean? Like impending action, like an attack or just impending machinery? I mean, what does this actually mean? Now, sadly, this article also hypes the idea that Iraq or North Korea could have smallpox. And it says this concern took on a new urgency after the terrorist attacks and anthrax scares last year. Fielding said he has no information about any new threat or risk of a smallpox attack. So the reason why I think this article is revealing and it's starting to show these cracks in the facade of what this was is because this seems really rushed for them to submit a proposal. Why were they rushing this? Was it just to create a sense of urgency among state governments to sort of hype them up into a frenzy, making them think that, or just sort of plant the seeds in their head that a terrorist attack might be coming without outright saying it? Could that be what this was? I mean, if that's what it was, it's pretty crazy. On December 4th, 2002, the Wall Street Journal in its book review section runs an article that's basically another Iraq war propaganda piece that's just trying to fearmonger people and create hysteria about Iraq possessing biological weapons. The review is called A Pox on All Our Houses by Nancy DeWolf-Smith, but it's basically this propaganda piece nested inside a book review. And the reason is, is because Iraq is mentioned over five times in this 11-paragraph article. And she says, Mr. Preston, the author of the bestseller The Hot Zone about an Ebola outbreak, gives us reason to fear the worst. Officially, there are two repositories of smallpox, freezers at the CDC in Atlanta and at Russia's State Research Center of Virology and Biotechnology near the Siberian city of Novosibirsk. But virtually nobody believes that's all there is out there. At the heart of Preston's book is an account of a Soviet bioscientist that produced tons of smallpox and a missile system to deliver it anywhere. In 1991, a team of British and American officials were permitted to, quote, inspect the Soviet facilities, but with no great success. Quote, they ran into the same problems that the United Nations inspectors would later run into in Iraq, writes Mr. Preston, including, quote, denials, evasions, time waste, and bureaucracy, unquote. But they saw and heard enough to know that the Soviets were making weaponized smallpox in quantities sufficient to infect every person on the planet 1,000 times over. And where is it all now? Nobody seems to know, Mr. Preston writes. He quotes an American scientist who spent time at the Siberian facility. The Russians themselves have told us that they lost control of their smallpox. They aren't sure where it went, but they think it migrated to North Korea. Then there's Iraq. The U.S. microbiologist Richard O. Spretzel, who headed the U.N.'s biological weapons inspection teams in Iraq, told Mr. Preston that he is sure the Iraqis have, quote, seed stocks, unquote, of smallpox. When inspectors came upon evidence of the smallpox weapons program outside Baghdad, Iraq's top virus expert told them that his team was working on weaponized camelpox. Since that disease is harmless to humans, nobody believed him. The inspectors wanted to have the facility blown up, Mr. Preston explains, but the French nixed the idea. And then it brings up this more crazy possibility that's already been brought up in this previous Judith Miller piece. Neither book ignores the most pressing question 
What if somebody has developed a genetically engineered form of smallpox that can, quote, crash through all the vaccines, rendering them useless? Now, more problems started to arise. The press started to report on things that were pretty unfavorable in regards to this smallpox vaccination rollout program. On December 5th, 2002, the Washington Post ran a headline, Smallpox Vaccine Reactions Jolt Experts. From rashes to fevers, array of side effects is uncommon today. By Cecil Connolly, WAPO staff writer. As physical specimens, the Baylor University students were fit and healthy, the creme de la creme, in the words of researcher Kathy Edwards. Yet, when she inoculated them with the smallpox vaccine, arms swelled, temperature spiked, and panic spread. This is uh, in regards to a recent study done, a government study conducted uh, leading up to the smallpox vaccination rollout program to see how people would react to the vaccines. Going back to the article, it was the same at clinics in Iowa, Tennessee, and California. Of 200 young adults who received the vaccine as part of a recent government study, one-third missed at least one day of work or school, 75 had high fevers, and several were put on antibiotics because physicians worried that their blisters signaled a bacterial infection. The side effects were quite startling, even for experts such as Edwards, a physician at the Vanderbilt University overseeing the study. I can read about it all day, but seeing it is quite impressive, she said. The reactions we saw were all quite remarkable. Bush is poised to announce plans, perhaps as early as this week, to resume vaccinating Americans against smallpox as a massive push to protect the nation from a biological assault. The experiences in half-dozen clinical trials offer an early look at what military personnel, hospital workers, and other emergency workers will likely encounter if Bush adopts the recommendations. What is disconcerting, say the people participating in the clinical trials, is that when it comes to smallpox vaccination, what had once been considered ordinary is rather extraordinary by today's standards. Unlike most modern vaccines, the smallpox vaccine is administered by 15 quick pricks that establish an infection in your skin. Within three to four days, a red itchy bump develops, followed by a large blister filled with pus. In the second week, the blister dries and turns into a scab that usually falls off in the third week. During the three weeks, many people experience flu-like symptoms. The reactions we are seeing are totally out of line with today's vaccine experience and absolutely in line with historical experience, said Dr. Fauci. In the 30 years since we had a routine vaccination, the public's tolerance level has gone way down. Maryland researchers have begun a second trial revaccinating other adults to see how much immunity stays in the system. The opinions in the article are sort of inconclusive, but it's implying several things. It's saying that people today were really alarmed by the side effects from the vaccine. And they like went to the hospital. Uh, they got very high fevers. They report a lot of side effects. The study results were surprising and jarring for a lot of people involved. And you have other people like Fauci saying, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is out of line with what you'd expect from vaccination. But like, it's historically lines up like this shit's hardcore, man. And people don't have much of a tolerance as they used to. I mean, so which, what's actually going on here? Is it that people's uh, immune systems or their bodies can't handle the vaccine as well as the population did back when it was administered in the 70s? Or was there just less reporting done of side effects back then? 
or were people not as aware of, you know, experiencing these side effects and just wouldn't report them? A lot of factors could have played into this, but it's interesting that this was basically reported in the Washington Post right before Bush was about to roll this out. Another editorial from the Washington Post, again, same paper, on the same day, December 5th, 2002, um, this time it's an editorial and it's called Thinking About Smallpox. It's a pretty short editorial. It's only three paragraphs long. And I'll read to you what uh, it's, it's, it starts by basically saying it, it kind of pumps the Iraq and North Korea might have smallpox line, which is, again, terrible. Uh, but it takes a turn in the middle where it lays this out very clearly that victims of smallpox vaccine side effects, including where it might be mandatory to take it like soldiers, do not have any way to go after these companies. They're not liable at all. This is what the editorial says. In a remarkably short period of time, the administration has completed preparations for this unprecedented and even historic vaccination against a disease no one has thought much about for a quarter century. Yet while the speed is commendable, it has come at a cost. A small percentage, perhaps 15 in a million of the doctors, nurses, and emergency workers who receive this vaccine will become seriously ill and one or two will die. An unknown percentage of those who come into contact with vaccinated people may also become sick as well. The Homeland Security Bill went out of its way to protect the vaccine's manufacturers, as well as those doing the vaccinating, from any liability for these injuries and deaths. No provisions were made, however, to compensate anyone injured by the vaccine or the families of those who die from it. This was not an accidental omission. Fears that a victim's compensation fund might be abused and legal complications created by previous funds led legislators to drop the idea. Not wanting to hold up the entire procedure, the administration didn't push it. There is talk of creating such a fund at some point in the future if the decision is made to offer the vaccination to a wider group of people. Those said to receive it now, however, are left without any support. At fault, in part, is a legal culture that has made injury compensation such a minefield. Also at fault is Congress willing to take everyone's pet concerns into account when drawing up the Homeland Security Bill, except those of the healthcare workers who will be the most critical to Homeland Security itself. At the next opportunity, Congress should look at this issue again, remembering who it is that the nation will rely on when the first case of smallpox is announced. Well, that's sort of an ominous downer, fear-mongering way to end the article. Now, there's not much coming out in the news in the way of this liability shield for the companies that are making the vaccines and how there's basically a liability sort of waiver, you know, secretly baked into this Homeland Security bill. But that news does start to bubble up eventually into the mainstream. But on December 6, 2002... There's an article in Reuters with the headline, G7 Mexico say preparing for smallpox terror attack. Mexico City. The world's leading industrial nations are expanding the global stockpile of smallpox vaccine to prepare for a possible terrorist attack using the deadly virus, health officials said on Friday. Senior health officials from the Group of Seven Nations and Mexico, which shares a long, porous border with the United States, said there was no imminent threat of an of a terrorist attack using the smallpox virus. However, 
They said their countries would work to increase the WHO's global reserve of the smallpox vaccine, as well as take any steps to respond to any attack. Now, this is strange because it sort of ties into a history of the G7 uh, getting together and doing sort of bioterror drills or preparation events. Tommy Thompson, right after the anthrax attack uh, at one of these G7 events, got together with the Mexican uh, health leaders and said that people should not make runs on Cipro. He announced that one of these previous G7 things. So there's been bioterror theme running through it the whole time, or at least since 9-11. And I, I mean, I'm sure likely before that as well. And I'm not sure if this involved the G8 group, because Russia eventually became part of sort of this satellite group called the G8 group. And Russia was officially kicked out of that uh, organization that sprung out of the G7. They were formally voted out in 2014 uh, over the sort of the annexing Crimea uh, experience. So if anybody lived in Russia at this time or remembers news from this time, I'm curious if there was Russia was pushing their own version of a smallpox vaccination program or hyping up their own population about smallpox terror. Was there any version of this playing out in Russia at all? Was there any version of Russian government leaders trying to fearmonger their population about like Chechens using uh, biological weapons or anything like that? Was there any version of that playing out there? I actually have no idea and I'd be curious to find out. But again, there's sort of this elephant in the room about Russia having to do with smallpox because all these insinuations have been made this entire time suggesting that Russia somehow let their smallpox be, you know, whisked away by terrorists or disgruntled scientists who then sold it to terrorists. But yet we still allow them or the World Health Organization or whoever allows Russia to have the only other known stockpile of smallpox virus. On December 10th, 2002, an article runs in the New York Times, Health Workers Union Wary of Smallpox Vaccinations. The nation's largest healthcare workers union warned yesterday that the government's plan to vaccinate against smallpox for the first time in 30 years needed strong protections to avoid jeopardizing the public health of hospital patients, health workers, and the public. The vaccination program moved a step closer to reality yesterday as the deadline passed for states and large cities to file their full plans to immunize health workers against smallpox. Many health officials, administrators, and doctors said that if vaccinations resumed, it would be after the New Year's Day to avoid problems at a busy time for hospital emergency rooms. Many hospitals are short of nurses and would find it difficult to find replacements for workers out sick because of sore arms, fevers, and other reactions to the smallpox vaccination. We are trying to be as flexible as we can and still stay on a timetable, said Jerome Hauer, who directs the Office of Public Health Preparedness in the Department of Health and Human Services. In issuing a strong warning, Andrew L. Stern, president of the Services Employees International Union, said that Bush and Congress have not done enough to protect and care for health workers, their families, and patients who could be harmed by the vaccine. The union also contended that workers who volunteer to take the vaccine should not lose income if they have to stay home because of the reactions. Jerome Hauer said that, quote, none of the issues were new to the Bush administration and that, quote, some of them have been addressed. 
Some are being addressed, and some are not issues the federal government should get involved in. Mr. Hauer also said he and union officials fully discussed the issues in a, quote, very productive meeting last Wednesday. The union said, quote, serious gaps remain. This is how much into the nitty-gritty Jerome Hauer got. He got into the weeds of the finest details of this rollout program, just to show how much he was involved in it. Seemingly more than any of these other officials I've named so far, in terms of being involved in the nitty-gritty. Now, healthcare union workers are saying that compressing the vaccination program into only one month will create a near-simultaneous outbreak of absenteeism in all the emergency rooms in the country. And they were basing this off of the study that had shown that basically 50% of the people who took the smallpox vaccine in a, in a volunteer study had gotten severe re- enough reactions where they like had like really big skin lesions and wanted to take off work. Now, another concern that the health workers union had was that the two-pronged needles that the government bought for the vaccinations did not sufficiently protect against accidental needle sticks, and that was dangerous because it could transmit AIDS or hepatitis. And the union had suggested another brand of needle. But Jerome Hauer himself responded to this request and said that the brand of needle they suggested was too big to fit in the vial of smallpox vaccine. He also said that the health officials judged the risk of needle stick transmissions to be very small. On December 10th, 2002, the New York Times runs an article, again by Judith Miller, this time about Israel's plan to vaccinate soldiers and healthcare workers for smallpox in case of bioterrorism. The article starts Tel Aviv, December 7th. Israel has successfully vaccinated more than 15,000 soldiers and public health workers against smallpox on a voluntary basis since July with virtually no severe side effects, senior Israeli officials say. And just again, to bolster this concept that I've been telling you, that these other countries got involved in their own smallpox rollout, seemingly with similar motivations to bolster this mythological concept that Iraq was somehow going to attack with smallpox. Because the article says, in interviews, Israeli military and public health officials said the immunizations had been carried out under a crash program to protect the country from a possible Iraqi attack with smallpox or other lethal germs. They're specifically saying Iraq here. Not even the U.S. was this explicit. So this really spells it out. The Israeli experience has encouraged vaccination advocates in the Bush administration, which has been debating a similar program for months, American officials said. The U.S. has much to learn from Israel's experience, says Leonard J. Marcus the director of healthcare negotiation and conflict resolution at Harvard School of Public Health. Israel has traditionally been extremely secretive about its defenses against biological weapons, but officials said in recent interviews that they had decided to discuss their program in some detail so that Israel's actions would not be misinterpreted and to ally public fears at home and abroad about the safety of the vaccine. After September 11th, there was a profound change in our psychology, says Boaz Lev, the director general of Israeli's Ministry of Health. Although there was no new information on which to base our vaccination decision, the potential terrorist threat increased dramatically, especially in the minds of doctors. Dr. Lev said that 
even though they decided to start revaccinating their population based on U.S. reports, Israel had now, quote, jumped far ahead of the American biodefense effort. He declined to say how many soldiers had been vaccinated, but he said that for soldiers and civilians alike, the program was now voluntary. Israel uses the Lister vaccine strain, different from the strain used by the United States. Dr. Lev said that Lister was less virulent than the American strain and has few si- fewer and has fewer side effects. So just one other interesting tidbit from that article is this idea that Israel had previously been very secretive about their quote-unquote biodefense, which I've been telling you repeatedly is basically just code word for an excuse to continue making biological weapons and to have a bioweapons arms race continue to go in the, under the guise of biodefense. But the fact that Israel got so on top of this and explicitly stated through their own public officials that this was done basically in case of an Iraqi smallpox attack is pretty notable, especially if they're saying U.S. efforts and reports are what spurred them to do this. Well, then that just sort of connects the dots right there. Obviously, Bush didn't outright explicitly say that this rollout program was because we wanted to prevent an Iraqi smallpox pandemic. But that's kind of what it, if you connect the dots, that is kind of what he was saying. He wasn't saying, they weren't connecting all the dots for us. We were connecting them in our minds. And I think that's part of the brilliance of the propaganda that they put out. As it just, our fear as a population drove us to those beliefs. We intuited those things. So even though most people don't even remember this smallpox rollout, I mean, at the time it was intuitively understood that this was something that Iraq could maybe do to us in retaliation for invading them. Israel too. But here's Israel just outright saying it. Now Bush is right on the cusp of announcing officially this smallpox vaccination rollout program, and no one knows exactly what it's going to be yet. But clearly the federal government had already been feeding things to the media, sort of, you know, trying to prepare the public for this, um, almost kind of PSA style, but not really because the information was continuously changing and it seemingly was just done for propaganda purposes for the Iraq war. So, you know, who knows how much this plan was really taken seriously by people on the inside. People like Jerome Hauer, I'm sure, had a much more cynical approach to this. He's kind of a dyed-in-the-wool PNAC adjacent character. But on December 11th, 2002, George W. Bush and Laura Bush were interviewed together on the 2020 program on ABC News by Barbara Walters. And the interview hadn't actually aired yet, uh, technically speaking, but ABC News was already airing preview clips as news networks do with such explosive or, you know, big get interviews. And the clips that they were running of this interview happened to be Barbara Walters asking uh, George and Laura Bush if they're going to get vaccinated from smallpox. Check it out. This Friday, the president is expected to announce a vaccination program. And in an exclusive interview with ABC's Barbara Walters, we learned that Mr. Bush wants to make the vaccine available to all Americans. The whole subject of um, smallpox inoculations, yeah. which um, has been recommended for some military personnel or for some health care 
personnel. Do you think that all Americans should be inoculated? I will have a detailed plan that the American people will, will digest. Uh, I, I think it ought to be a voluntary plan. In other words, I don't think people ought to be compelled uh, to make the decision which they think is best for their family. And it, what's going to be very important is for us to make sure that there's ample information for people to make a, a, a wise decision. How would you feel about your daughters being inoculated? If um, the vaccine were available, which I think it will be, I would feel like that was certainly safe for them to do. All of us were. I know there's a slight risk. Uh, that's what people will weigh when they make the decision whether or not to have their children vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So the information still seems wishy-washy. Bush is saying he doesn't want it to be mandatory, he wants it to be voluntary. Yet the program he ends up rolling out just a couple days later is mandatory vaccination for U.S. soldiers. And he's simultaneously saying he wants to make it available to everybody. And Laura Bush is saying that she would feel safe giving it to her own children. Complete fucking bullshit. As we'll actually find out later. Barbara's interview with the president and the first lady can be seen for the full hour on 2020 this Friday. Our White House correspondent Terry Moran has covered this long debate in the administration about vaccinations. There's more, I know, Terry. First of all, who would get vaccinated first under the president's plan and when? Peter, under the president's plan, military personnel would get first access to the vaccine very quickly since many of them could be at risk of exposure to smallpox in any possible war against Iraq, which is believed to have weaponized the virus. I hope you caught that because that's pretty much another official admission that this is why they're doing it. Why would they do it to soldiers first? Well, in case Iraq attacks them with smallpox. It's almost just like the Iraq war is inevitable, even though we're still several months out from the actual quote-unquote decision to go to war. Right behind the military officials tell us would be first responders, about 100 workers at each of the nation's 5,000 hospitals, and then firefighters, paramedics, police officers. And then by 2004, every American would have the choice to be vaccinated. Terry, briefly, Mrs. Bush mentioned availability. If there were something to happen now, how much vaccine available? Officials say every American could get the vaccination now. They are prepared to ship 75 million vaccines in one day if there were an outbreak. Some of that is from older stocks, and the president wants to delay vaccinating the entire country or offering the vaccination to everyone until 2004, until newer stocks can come online, and until everybody gets a chance, as he put it, to digest this choice. Thank you, Terry. As I said a year ago, we weren't talking about this at all. Later in the broadcast, we'll take a closer look at what is still a difficult debate about the vaccination program. Now, instead of continuing ABC's programming, on this quote-unquote difficult debate about a vaccination program that really seems incoherent at best and completely unnecessary, that maybe middle, worst, best, I don't know. CNN also runs a segment that same evening, December 11th, about this smallpox vaccination rollout program before Bush's official announcement. Is the vaccine dangerous? Who is going to get access to the vaccine? Who has the vaccine right now? Who's already gotten it? Begin with the president's plan to start vaccinating people against a disease that literally has not been seen on Earth in more than 20 years. Smallpox was eradicated in 1980 and since then has officially existed only in a few freezers and in a few labs around the world. That's the devil we know. The devil we don't know is who else might have it. Only that we're pretty certain some very unsavory countries, including possibly Iraq, might and might be trying to turn it into a weapon. 
So for much of the year, the government has been grappling with the idea of vaccinating troops and healthcare workers and perhaps the entire population. Again, leading with this idea that unsavory characters have gotten a hold of the virus like Iraq. I mean, just completely out of thin air, again, pushing this made-up bullshit. If the vaccine were perfectly safe, this would be an easy decision. But it's not, so it has taken a while. We begin tonight at the White House. CNN's Frank Buckley. Frank? Well, Aaron, a senior administration official tells us tonight that the decision has been made and that the announcement will come on Friday formally. But as we said a moment ago, uh, we've been told that this will be offered in phases. The first phase will involve the members of the U.S. military. Some 500,000 members uh, of the U.S. military will get inoculated in that first phase. Uh, following that group, emergency care providers, ER doctors, others who would come in contact with anyone infected with smallpox, and again, that's about a half million people. They will get the vaccination. Then first responders, and this is a fairly large number, some 7 to 10 million paramedics, police officers, and other health care workers would be given the chance to be immunized. And then at some point, the general public would also have the chance to get the vaccine. The president says it'll be voluntary for civilians. Tonight, uh, ABC News have broadcast an interview with the president, uh, a portion of that interview that will be aired on 2020 later this week, in which the president said that for civilians it should be voluntary and that they, the government needs to be responsible to get as much information out there to the public as possible so that people can make the proper choices. Uh, that's important information, Aaron, because as you touched on, there are some potential risks involved in getting the smallpox vaccination of the one million people who get the vaccine, out of a million people who get the vaccination, according to 1960s data, uh, one or two will die. And uh, out of that uh, uh, one million, 15 people will suffer life-threatening complications. Aaron? Does the vaccine currently exist? Yes, it does. In fact, U.S. officials say that they have enough right now to, to vaccinate everyone in the U.S. That on hand at this moment in freezers and refrigerators and around the country, there are 250 plus million doses of smallpox vaccine? Well, that I, I don't know. I, I just know that uh, from some of our reporting earlier from Elizabeth Cohen, our medical correspondent uh -huh. and others who've been on this, that, that the administration officials have said that we have enough for everyone in this country. Well, we have enough or we better find enough because it sounds like the president's going to open that floodgate this week. Frank, thank you. Now, there's more clues here that things were sort of sloppily being rolled out and that Bush actually delayed his announcement beyond what he had originally intended. Because some of these newspaper stories and some of the news reports just start to sound like, you know, government press releases in some form or another. And also sort of ample warnings about the dangers of the vaccine, but also sort of encouraging people that they can have the choice to take it. Now, the first story I was able to find before Bush's actual official announcement saying that he was going to order soldiers to take the smallpox vaccine was from December 12, 2002. An LA Times staff writer, Vicki Kemper, wrote this article implying that Bush was going to make the official announcement on Friday, but that the general public is not expected to have access to the vaccine until early 2004 when sufficient doses have been fully licensed by the FDA. Now, what happened to this talk about licensing the vaccine, uh, the FDA licensing the vaccine just for soldiers? Did this ever happen? 
did I miss a story where this actually happened? Because if they're already rolling out mandatory smallpox vaccine for soldiers and it didn't get FDA licensing, that's pretty disturbing. I mean, just in and of itself, if that just sort of fell by the wayside. But it does seem like Bush accidentally, you know, dragged his feet on announcing this and sort of the press started to kind of come out and announce these plans and these rollout plans sort of before he actually announced it himself. The LA Times in another article um, on the same day uh, has a little chart, a little illustration saying vaccine dangers. President Bush has decided to make smallpox vaccine available to everyone, but many people face a greater danger from side effects. People at risk, expectant mothers or mothers who are currently breastfeeding, anyone under 18 years old, those with a moderate or severe short-term illness, those with eczema or atopic dermatitis, those being treated for cancer, those who are HIV positive, those who have had an organ transplant, life-threatening reactions, between 15 and 52 people per million vaccinated for the first time experience potentially life-threatening reactions, about one person per million dies. Eczema, Serious skin rashes caused by widespread infection of the skin in people with eczema. Ongoing infection of skin with tissue destruction. Inflammation of the brain affects about 12 people per million. You know, so they're publishing these diagrams basically in newspapers um, as if there's sort of these official recommendations, like as if it's health advice and its sources are from the Center for Disease Control as it says here on this illustration, which you can, by the way, find in the smallpox cache under the news folder. Continuing to take the wind from Bush's sails, the media continues to lead the rollout before Bush officially announces. Dan Rather on CBS News that same evening as the LA Times articles I was just reading from leads a segment on CBS where they have sort of an honest airing of the side effects from the vaccine more or less what the actual official plan ends up being. And they explain that. So it's kind of a mixture between a government press release, but also maybe leaning into a little bit more than the government press release wanted them to about the side effects from the vaccine itself. With Dan Rather reporting from CBS News headquarters in New York. Good evening. It has enormous implications for public health and the battle against bioterror. President Bush is putting into motion a controversial plan to offer smallpox vaccine to any American who wants it to defend against possible attack with smallpox weapons. Before smallpox was officially eradicated a few decades ago, it killed hundreds of millions of people. But the vaccine itself can cause hard side effects, even death. CBS's John Roberts reports the president's plan, the benefits and the risks. The first wave of vaccinations will be mandatory and will begin in early January. A half a million U.S. troops who could be on the front lines of any bioweapon attack. Next will come voluntary vaccination of up to 10 million health care workers, first responders, police and firemen, the first line of defense in any outbreak. The public will have access to the vaccine in two ways. Americans can immediately ask to be inoculated with existing stocks of the old smallpox vaccine, or they can wait until later next year when new vaccine production comes online. White House officials said today if someone really wants the vaccine in the coming weeks, they can get it. 
President Bush wrestled with the decision of who to vaccinate for months. The reason? As infectious disease specialist Dr. Paul Offit told Dan Rather, the smallpox vaccine can be dangerous. We know that if we immunize a million people, that there will be 15 people that will suffer a severe permanent adverse outcome and one person who may die from, from the vaccine. The White House felt the threat of a bioterror attack from Iraq, which is rumored to possess smallpox, or Al-Qaeda, was great enough to chance vaccinating millions of people. But Jonathan Tucker, author of Scourge, the once and future threat of smallpox, says there's only circumstantial evidence that Iraq has smallpox, and at present, the risk far outweighs the benefit. It is a potential concern, but I don't see it as an imminent threat. Um, and we need to weigh that against the known risks associated with mass vaccination. Critics of the White House program say since a person can be effectively vaccinated up to three days after they've been exposed to smallpox, there's no need to do it preventively. But President Bush knew politically he had to offer the vaccine to anyone who wants it. The White House will point out tomorrow that there are millions of Americans who should not be inoculated. People with certain medical conditions that put them at a high risk for severe reaction. But the decision to vaccinate will likely be left between a patient and their physician. Dan? John Roberts reporting live from the White House. A provision in the new Homeland Security law protects smallpox vaccine makers from lawsuits over possible side effects. But another provision was quietly tucked into that law to shield and benefit a big drug company that has nothing to do with smallpox vaccine. Who put it there and why? CBS's Jim Acosta investigated and came up with the, some answers. A mystery in Washington for weeks. Just before the president signed the Homeland Security Bill into law, an unknown member of Congress inserted a provision into the legislation that blocks lawsuits against the maker of a controversial vaccine preservative called thimerosal. Drug giant Eli Lilly makes thimerosal. You have a good day today. And it's the mercury in the preservative that many parents say causes autism in thousands of children like Mary-Kate Kilpatrick. You think she's a victim? I think autism is mercury poisoning. But nobody in Congress would admit to adding the provision until now. I did it. I'm proud I did it. it was House Majority Leader Dick Armey tells CBS News he did it to keep vaccine makers from going out of business under the weight of mounting lawsuits. We need to keep it in there if you want the vaccines to be available for your children in the future. But we're not in the interest in homeland security of making opportunities available for trial lawyers to get rich. Republican Dan Burton is not buying it. The grandfather of an autistic child, Burton says, Army slipped it in at the last minute, too late for debate. And I said, well, who told you to put that in? Was it one of the senators? He said, no, uh, I was, they, asked, they asked me to do it at the White House. Critics say the Bush family and the administration have too many ties to Eli Lilly. There's President Bush's father, who sat on the company's board in the 70s. White House Budget Director Mitch Daniels, once an Eli Lilly executive. And Eli Lilly CEO Sidney Terrell serves on the President's Homeland Security Advisory Council. Eli Lilly and company, no one, not our CEO, not myself, not anyone who works with me, asked the White House to insert this legislation. But Michael and Kathy Kilpatrick argue the thimerosal provision is not designed to protect the nation, but rather to protect Eli Lilly. If a congressman comes forward and says, it was me. What do you have to say to that congressman? I'd ask him if he knew it was protecting mercury shot into our kids. Because Army is retiring, some say the outgoing majority leader is the perfect fall guy, taking the heat to shield the White House from embarrassment. It's a claim both the White House and Army deny. Jim Acosta, CBS News, New York.
That same evening, NBC News runs their own segment on the rollout. And while their segment doesn't actually spend much time talking about this thing that doesn't protect the public but only protects the drug companies, if anybody gets hurt from this vaccine, they do sort of have a more eerie tone to their programming, I think, where they're sort of saying, uh, we may have to decide for ourselves and for our family what to do with this smallpox vaccine. And the implication is not that it's going to be mandatory, but it's sort of like this heavy weight of pressure. You're going to have to make this decision. So here's that clip. NBC News in depth tonight, the White House is set to formally announce its policy on smallpox vaccines for the general public in the face of bioterror threats, reopening a public health problem that in fact was solved a long time ago. In depth now, here's NBC's Robert Hager. This is the vaccination every American may now be able to ask for a little over a year from now. Okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to a little drop of the vaccine between the two forks. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put that on your skin in the center of the circle. It contains a smallpox-like virus poked into the skin through a series of 15 light punctures. So you see you've got just a little bit of bleeding Later, the arm gets red, swells, sometimes there's fever, and in a trial recently, one-third missed a day's work. But in three weeks, the scab comes off, and the recipient is now immune to one of nature's deadliest diseases. Soon, each of us may have to decide for ourselves and for our families. While the risks of a terrorist attack are small, they're certainly possible. But there are also risks from the inoculation, too. The date is old from before 1972, last time the shot was generally available in the U.S., but it's the same vaccine around today. Of every million inoculated then, 240 got temporary open sores, 38 got eczema, serious rash with sores, 12 got life-threatening encephalitis, inflammation of the brain, one or two per million died. Dr. Sue Bailey, once in charge of military health care. This isn't modern medicine, this is old medicine and old dangerous vaccine. So it's not like the flu shot. It's not like a tetanus shot. This is a dangerous vaccine which can be spread to others and which can cause serious side effects in the individual who gets it. Not recommended for those weakened by cancer, AIDS, skin problems like eczema, pregnant women, or infants. As for others, we asked Senator Bill Frist, a doctor, what he'd do. And I will do like every other, every other American and assess where I live, what's going on in the world, uh, should I inoculate my children? And today, I probably would not get that inoculation. But at the first sign smallpox has reappeared anywhere, Frist would go running for the shot. A choice now left to each of us. Robert Hager, NBC News, Washington. Now, after much hype and anticipation, and after many, many delays, George W. Bush finally does an official press conference where he officially announces the smallpox vaccination rollout program. And at first, the program involves the mandatory vaccination of 500,000 soldiers. Not voluntary. And surprisingly, Bush offered himself up as basically a guinea pig to show the nation that the vaccine was safe enough to take by offering to take the vaccine himself. Now, you almost have to watch the video of this clip to really get the full picture of how Bush seems like he's drugged, very, very tired, intoxicated. He's borderline slurring his speech and his emoting in the video is just very odd. It's unsettling to watch. But combined with this content and how crazy this program was and how fucking unnecessary, 
and basically how it was just like a neocon scaremongering campaign that it was, it makes it even more ridiculous to watch this all on video. So unfortunately, the audio doesn't fully capture it, but here's his official words during the rollout. One potential danger to America is the use of the smallpox virus as a weapon of terror. Smallpox is a deadly but preventable disease. Most Americans who are 34 or older had a smallpox vaccination when they were children. By 1972, the risk of smallpox was so remote that routine vaccinations were discontinued in the United States. In 1980, the World Health Organization declared that smallpox had been completely eradicated. And since then, there has not been a single natural case of the disease anywhere in the world. We know, however, that the smallpox virus still exists in laboratories. And we believe that regimes hostile to the United States may possess this dangerous virus. To protect our citizens in the aftermath of September the 11th, we are evaluating old threats in a new light. Our government has no information that a smallpox attacks is imminent. Yet it is prudent to prepare for the possibility that terrorists would kill indiscriminately, who, who kill indiscriminately, would use diseases as a weapon. More than a year ago, our public health agencies began preparations more than a year ago. Today, through the hard work of our Department of Health and Human Services, ably led by Tommy Thompson, and state and local health officials, America has stockpiled enough vaccine and is now prepared to inoculate our entire population in the event of a smallpox attack. Americans and anyone who would think of harming Americans can be certain that this nation is ready to respond quickly and effectively to a smallpox emergency or an increase in the level of threat. <clears throat> Today, I'm directing additional steps to protect the health of our nation. I'm ordering that the military and other personnel who serve America in high-risk parts of the world receive the smallpox vaccine. Men and women who could be on the front lines of a biological attack must be protected. This particular vaccine does involve a small risk of serious health considerations. As Commander-in-Chief, I do not believe I can ask others to accept this risk unless I am willing to do the same. Therefore, I will receive the vaccine along with our military. So for me, the ultimate question here is, other than what in the fuck were they thinking and how come more people weren't like blowing the whistle on how crazy this was? But did anyone ask Bush for proof? Was the press allowed to photograph him or videotape him getting the vaccine? Apparently they weren't. They just took his word for it. But if you notice in this 
NBC News report from the same evening Bush announces the program, where they talk about how 500,000 troops are going to be inoculated as they head to Iraq, you know, months before the war is launched. Again, sort of just tying this thing together with Iraq. It also says that Bush would be vaccinated, but his family and his staff would not be. And the way the reporter says it kind of implies a little incredulity on the reporter's part. I think that he's sort of implying that maybe Bush didn't even get vaccinated. But this also is Laura Bush basically going back on what she said in the Barbara Walters interview. So apparently nobody in Bush's family was vaccinated and nobody on his staff was. So how do we know he really was? And also the sad thing about this is this NBC News report is delivered by Tom Brokaw, who was a victim of an anthrax hoax letter and a real letter that came and infected one of his own staffers. But yet here he is just pumping Iraq war propaganda as we lead up to this horrible U.S. invasion, this massacre, and he's pivoting immediately to a smallpox segment as he's just laying out all this Iraq war propaganda and then just, boom, just pivots to smallpox. Like, just to give you an example of how much this was enmeshed and also how the Iraq war was building up at the exact same time this was being rolled out. U.S. and U.N. officials are saying that Iraq's 12,000-page weapons report has failed to account for large numbers of missing weapons of mass destruction and Iraq's program to develop nuclear weapons. U.S. officials also told NBC's Pentagon correspondent Jim Mikluszewski that the Iraqis have sent key scientists into hiding and prepared phony death certificates for others to keep them from being questioned by the weapons inspectors. And as expected, President Bush today ordered half a million American military personnel, many of whom could be headed for Iraq to take a smallpox vaccine. And he recommended that emergency workers get them as well. The president said it is prudent to prepare for that possibility that terrorists could use disease as a weapon. The president also said as commander-in-chief, he would be vaccinated, but his family members and his staff would not be. Now we're going to return back to the subject of did Bush actually vaccinate himself or not? Can we trust that? We're going to return to that in a little bit. But first, I'm going to give you kind of some in-depth backstory as to what happened and why this rollout was so fucked up. Partly the inside story. In the Wall Street Journal on December 13th, 2002... In response to Bush's announcement, a particularly disgusting op-ed is written that's just totally gung-ho behind Bush's program and thinks it's a great idea. And some of the language in it is just especially disgusting in retrospect that people were just this gung-ho behind anything the Bush administration was asking them to do. The editorial is titled Smallpox and Beyond. President Bush gives a shot in the arm to individual choice today unveiling a smallpox plan that will give all Americans access to the vaccine. What this administration could do now is turn this very good decision into an intense federal campaign to develop and stockpile medical defenses against bioterror. The smallpox plan looks like a good balance of national security, personal choice, and safety. Military personnel and healthcare workers will receive the vaccine first, readying the nation in case of an outbreak. It doesn't mention there that military personnel will not have a choice unless they want to leave the military. Credit Mr. Bush for siding with average Americans over hand-wringing public health officials. 
About two-thirds of the country has said in surveys that they want access to a vaccine. Credit also goes to several Bush health advisors, including Tommy Thompson and Julie Gerberding, for throwing over the usual we-know-best attitude. Now, I like the way that that's worded. Citing credit to Mr. Bush for siding with average Americans over hand-wringing public health officials. So just uh, let's just dissect that statement for a second. Basically, what Bush did is he used like these academic neocon fucking scumbags like David Frum, Paul Wolfowitz, Scooter Libby, to disseminate all this propaganda out there to get the quote-unquote average American worried about their own safety and their family's safety from bioterror, completely unnecessarily, just so they could sell the Iraq war. So the idea that Bush is siding over these quote-unquote average Americans who are basically victims of neocon neoconservative propaganda is a very disgusting statement in that somehow these hand-wringing public health officials are standing in the way of good old average Americans from protecting themselves. When in fact, these quote-unquote hand-wringing public health officials were just health officials who were like, this seems really fucking unnecessary. This is the most dangerous vaccine. And it's really unnecessary to give this out to people for like literally no reason. And that's what a hand-wringing public health official is apparently. So I don't know why that uh, that uh, op-ed really rubs me the wrong way <laughs> compared to some of the other stuff I've read you. I mean, a lot of the other stuff I've read you is disgusting, but this op-ed, I don't know, in particular really bothers me. So I think it's a really strong insight into how much people were just, you know, basically just total brown shirts for these Bush neocons. Now, the New York Times continues to be one of the leading propaganda outlets for bioterror fear-mongering after 9-11. Because William J. Broad, the co-writer of Germs, Judith Miller's writing colleague, on December 14, 2002, writes an article for the New York Times called Bush Signals He Thinks Possibility of Smallpox Attack is Rising. For months, the Bush administration has talked about the threat of smallpox, but have offered no strong proof. But by asking millions of Americans to accept the risks of smallpox vaccinations, President Bush has signaled that he thinks the possibility of an attack is rising as the United States considers a war against Iraq and assesses long-term dangers. Even if Saddam is removed in Iraq, federal officials said yesterday the specter of a smallpox attack won't disappear. The announcement of the nation's first smallpox vaccination campaign in three decades is part of a long-term strategy to protect the country. The administration's decision to offer 10.5 million American healthcare workers and other Americans a vaccine against this disease says more about the perceived risk of a smallpox attack than volumes of official statements and congressional testimony, or even Mr. Bush's assurances yesterday that the U.S. faces no imminent threat. It means officials are willing to accept the potential public backlash from the complications of the vaccine. We live in a new world, said Jerome M. Hauer. In an interview, Mr. Hauer said Mr. Bush's decision was rooted in a calculus that looked at the smallpox threat over the long term, not just weeks or months, but years and decades. The risks accumulate over a long time, Mr. Hauer said, and that drives officials to take prudent steps how to prepare for the worst. By vaccinating millions of Americans, Hauer said, you're testing your logistics, developing trained cadres, and protecting medical response teams, 
So in the event of an incident, you don't have to be concerned about vaccinating those groups. Yesterday, Mr. Bush seemed to bend over backwards not to create panic. His strongest statement on the danger was that, quote, regimes hostile to the U.S. may possess this dangerous virus, unquote. Then it says, the smallpox push is reminiscent of an earlier vaccination. Well, I should actually say, before it goes into this, it actually just hypes up the idea that Iraq may have smallpox again and sort of makes it seem like the Bush administration was pussyfooting around something that we all know is that Iraq may have smallpox. This author is sort of taking that stance. But then he says, the smallpox push is reminiscent of an earlier vaccination episode that involved anthrax vaccine. Again, it occurred in reaction to Saddam Hussein. In December 1997, six years after the Persian Gulf War, the Pentagon announced that it had decided to vaccinate its 2.4 million soldiers and reservists against anthrax. It was unclear what prompted the decision. Iraq's program to make biological weapons has been exposed more than two years earlier. Clinton officials offered no public assessment of what new dangers existed, if any. In time, the anthrax program turned into a PR disaster, with hundreds of soldiers refusing to take the shots and even some suing the government. One fear, discounted by federal officials, was that the vaccine can cause serious side effects, as medical experts agree that the smallpox vaccine did in the past and can do again today. Now, it is true that there was like a total bioterror scaremongering campaign that also paralleled the first Gulf War, but actually chemical weapons, more for the actual Gulf War itself. But as they were sort of leading up to another potential Gulf War during Clinton, because Clinton kept sort of threatening one, they decided to vaccinate 2.4 million U.S. soldiers with this experimental anthrax vaccine that many people believe led to something, a potentially Gulf War syndrome. Not this exact vaccine, but vaccines that they received during the actual Gulf War as well. So I guess really the point of this article is saying that because this rollout is happening, that this must mean that there's an increased threat level detected, even if the officials aren't directly saying so. So in essence, this op-ed writer or this writer, William J. Broad, this Judith Miller guy, colleague, he's sort of echoing the concept I was mentioning earlier, this idea that the Bush administration is cleverly laying out these propaganda seeds so that people infer these things in their own mind. They'll hear Bush say, on one hand, that there is no imminent threat, there is no intelligence to suggest smallpox attack is coming, but because this is being announced and rolled out, on some level it must mean that this is a serious threat, that it must mean it might be coming. So it's like a mixed message, but one that ultimately sort of leans in the direction of believing and, bu and sort of buying into your gut level fear rather than what you're hearing Bush tell you, which is supposed to be, I guess, reassuring that it's not imminent, while he's simultaneously rolling out this totally unnecessary program. Now we get really the first article that's supposed to be sort of like an inside baseball behind the scenes, you know, what happened, why was there so much mixed messaging, why did it seem so disorganized when it was rolled out? Why did so many officials contradict each other? Explanation uh, from Science Magazine. Now, this article is fairly long. I'm going to read many parts of it. From December 20th, 2002, this was published in Science Magazine, called The Rough and Tumble Behind Bush's Smallpox Policy. Now, it starts out giving you some insight into how instrumental Dick Cheney was in crafting this policy. It literally starts like this. On the afternoon of... December 9th, Monday, 
Top public health officials met at Vice President Cheney's residence for a crucial meeting to help hammer out the details of the Bush administration's policy for smallpox vaccination. The central issue, how to balance the known risks of the vaccine, which can injure and kill, against the unknown risk that rogue states or terrorists would use the smallpox virus as a weapon. Almost uniformly, the public health experts were opposed to immunizing the general public to protect against an uncertain attack. But there was strong support among some in the White House, and especially in the vice president's office, for widespread vaccination pre-attack, in part because they questioned whether the Department of Health and Human Services could halt an outbreak should a bioterrorist attack occur. But by the end of the meeting, the scientists had convinced administration officials that the Health and Human Services containment plan could work. Had we not reassured Cheney on that day, we really did not know what we were talking about. I think the vaccine would have been offered more widely to the general public, says one scientist who attended the meeting. Four days later, on December 13th, George W. Bush, with Health and Human Services officials at his side, announced the policy. Immediate mandatory vaccination of 500,000 military soldiers and a voluntary campaign to be completed by summer 2002 among a similar number of healthcare workers or first responders. Then the government would offer the vaccine up to 10 million additional healthcare workers, police, firefighters, and other personnel deemed essential. If people insisted on being vaccinated, he said, the government would work to accommodate them. Reaction in the public health community has been largely a relief that mass vaccination was staved off. One insider dubbed the drama that went on behind the scenes of having to decide the terms of this, what they called torturous negotiations. He called the drama a, quote, soap opera. It says most of the people in this article would only speak candidly if they remained unidentified, given their close working relationships with the president and vice president. Most give the administration credit for its willingness to dive into complex scientific issues. And several advisors came away impressed with Cheney's grasp of the current data. There was a complete lack of trying to bully public health officials, insists Anthony Fauci. And in the end, the White House arrived at a compromise that most of the scientists felt was, in Fauci's words, reasonable, supply and demand. The first indication of an ideological rift between the White House and HHS surfaced soon after they sorted out their vaccine supply. Fauci called for an open and public dialogue on the advantages and disadvantages of universal voluntary vaccination. By then, a vociferous debate was already raging behind the scenes. D.A. Henderson, Russell, Fauci, and others urged the White House to move slowly in vaccinating the public, stressing that, short of convincing evidence that the smallpox attack was imminent, the benefits simply did not outweigh the risks. It's not just about individual rights, as some libertarians argue, says Tara O'Toole. It's a societal issue. Some also worry this, that the severe side effects could undermine public confidence in both the government's biodefense effort and vaccination in general. Once the first two kids with progressive vaccinia are on TV, the public could decide that the government has no idea what it's talking about, says O'Toole behind closed doors. Now, I think this is the key to understanding what they were really debating behind the scenes. They knew that they were going to receive the fallout of basically dead or very ill children from this vaccine. They were going to get extremely intense backlash. 
even if it was voluntary, because they were putting the fear into people. If they made this available to everybody and, and you know, actually really did it for real, people would get it and people would probably die from it. So this is what they were deciding. How far did they want to push this because they knew they were going to get a certain amount of backlash? If they were truly worried about a smallpox attack, they would have vaccinated the public and really rolled this out in a much more serious way and not you know, made the deadline really immediate right after announcing that there's a deadline to submit for states to submit their proposals to get supplies of vaccine. Dick Cheney was often hanging out with Jerome Hauer and their vaccination coordinator, Russell. Uh, he went with them to the CDC and seemed to go along with this idea of voluntary vaccination for the public and only just vaccinating frontline people right now. But the article continues, but over the summer, the mass vaccination forces gained momentum. In hearings, op-ed pieces, and back-channel phone calls, Republican Senators Bill Frist, Arlen Specter, and Judd Gregg made the case that anyone who wanted the vaccine should have it. Cheney shared this opinion. According to several sources close to the process, Cheney's chief of staff, Louis Libby, argued forcefully for widespread vaccination. There's little doubt that Libby is the driver said one scientific advisor. Cheney staffer Carol Kuntz, never heard of her, but that's a great name, Carol Kuntz, with a K and a Z, was also very animated about the issue. Neither Libby nor Kuntz would speak to science. Several sources ascribed their motives to the libertarian argument, described in an April report by the Cato Institute think tank that the government has no business telling informed citizens that they cannot have a vaccine bought with tax dollars. Well, that's very fascinating that they're sort of using an underhanded libertarian argument to push for like a completely fake, hyped-up, bioterror, scaremongering campaign. It's pretty amazing. And I'll actually tell you at the end of this podcast that the Cato Institute oddly did play into this neoconservative scaremongering campaign on bioterror. They did in a really strong way that kind of even surprised me, even though I have no love for the Cato Institute. Another source cited the dark winter scenario. Both Libby and Kuntz also have strong ties to the Department of Defense, which Cheney used to head, where pressure was mounting to, quote, take that card from Saddam's deck before an attack on Iraq. The debate ratcheted up in July when the Monterey Institute of International Studies published a report suggesting that a smallpox outbreak in the former Soviet Union in 1971 had been caused by secret bioweapons tests in the Aral Sea. Even so, insiders including Fauci, who had ties to Cheney and Bush as close as those of any scientist involved in the process, were caught off guard in September when the Associated Press reported that Bush planned to offer the vaccine to every American. Health and Human Services officials outlined to reporters what indeed seemed to be a surprisingly broad vaccination policy. Quote, right now our thinking is in favor of making vaccine available to the general public, said CDC Director Julie Gerberding. Gerberding felt very adamant about limiting vaccinations to only healthcare workers and military, says one behind-the-scenes source. But in public, she was the one, like, seemingly just you know, pushing for this mass vaccination policy, getting pressure from the Bush administration. And then as soon as they actually started to send teams of like people out to different healthcare workers as they were starting to roll this out, they realized that the administration was essentially just like totally waffling. 
on the new recommendations. It seemed like the closer they got to actually having the rubber meet the road and realizing they were going to just get a bunch of like side effects just among the healthcare workers that were being vaccinated, things started to get sort of wishy-washy. It's not exactly clear exactly how this happened, but it says media attention was now riveted on the debate. News stories began appearing nearly every week about the smallpox vaccination program, all indicating that the policy would extend far beyond the 500,000 troops. But despite predictions that a policy statement was imminent, Bush remained mum. Some top officials became frustrated by the delays. This is complicated, but it's not that complicated, said one official. To almost everyone's surprise, Bush finally revealed a few details about the policy in an interview with Barbara Walters on the 2020 program. First Lady Laura Bush added that she would be comfortable having her children vaccinated, a remark that seemingly signaled government support for general vaccination. But in the official announcement two days earlier, Bush's tone was much different. This time, the message had been very carefully crafted. The government does not recommend widespread vaccination, he said. But for those who insist on receiving it, the government would develop ways to give them access. Health and Human Services plans to organize special access to the Aventus Pasteur vaccine, which is not yet licensed as an investigational new drug. Fauci said, if we do face the horrors of an attack, then we'll be very glad we went through this. Now, there's a lot to unpack there in that article, but I'm not going to take the time to do it just because the article itself and the content I read has already took up so much time in this podcast. But just keep in mind that Scooter Libby, again, was an instrumental player in all this. Dick Cheney was, Jerome Hauer was. And, you know, look at those documents for yourself. Look at the actual plan that they rolled out and tell me that that was a serious plan, even though they really put out a lot of documents and they tried to create a little bit of a snowstorm and make it seem really serious. I, I just don't, I, I really, you know, am increasingly thinking this was all just done as show to help create this climate of fear and also to get us into the Iraq war. And also as a boon for the bio defense industry, the bioterror, the bioweapons industry. And now news reports start coming out talking about George W. Bush getting the smallpox vaccine because, you know, they want to make this seem realistic. But again, no news cameras were present for it. And we'll find out why in a little bit. But this news story I'm going to play you from December 21st, 2002, NBC News has this extremely bizarre, stilted, scripted, almost like it's from the Operation Dark Winter exercise feel to it. And I'm not saying that this news report is scripted or is part of some kind of simulation or anything like that. I'm not suggesting that, but it just it just oddly strikes me as like, wow, this almost seems like something that would be in the Dark Winter simulation. It just has the same like cadence, the same, I don't know. It's just, it's weird. It's just one of those things, I guess. Uh, but take a listen to this NBC News report that talks a little bit about the program itself, but also mentions that Bush promises to get vaccinated himself. And also, I should mention that, again, this clip is immediately preceded by a segment that's about how uh, we're not going to stretch ourselves too thin if we also wage another war simultaneously in Iraq at the same time as Afghanistan and the war on terror. Hilarious uh, anti-prescience. I guess you could call it. 
And also just, again, surreal that this is happening in parallel to the smallpox vaccine rollout in the news. Troops here in Afghanistan, when asked if the military would be stretched too thin in the event of an attack on Iraq, General Meyer said that the U.S. is capable of fighting a war on two fronts. John? NBC's Patricia Sabga in Kabul. Patricia, thank you. President Bush made good on his promise to get a smallpox vaccination, receiving it today in his left arm before leaving the White House for Camp David. Doctors said there were no side effects, but a new poll shows Americans are confused about the disease and the vaccine. Joining us now is Dr. Sue Bailey, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense, who was in charge of protecting the military from biowarfare. She's also an NBC News analyst. Dr. Bailey, the president took the dramatic step of getting the smallpox vaccine today. Does this mean everyone should be vaccinated? Well, it clearly does not. The president's showing confidence in this vaccine that he's ordering American troops to take because they could be at risk on the battlefield from an attack with smallpox. But that's not the case with most Americans. And so, no, they should not be taking it at this point. Again, we're told this is a very dangerous vaccine. How so? This particular vaccine is an older type vaccine. It's the same one we used decades ago. And in fact, unlike the flu vaccine, which can't cause the flu, this is a live vaccine that could cause sort of a milder version of smallpox, which is actually cowpox, uh, and therefore create disease or problems for the, for the person taking it. So if there is a smallpox outbreak, how prepared is the United States to distribute the vaccine? Well, they're very prepared, and I think the, the president's also demonstrating that. America is going to protect itself. It has enough vaccine. If there were a case anywhere, probably in the world, but certainly in the Western Hemisphere, we would go ahead, I truly believe, and vaccinate Americans to protect them from possible terrorism because we've not had a real case since 1977, and that would mean there was an intentional release of smallpox. And who is at risk if the vaccine has to be distributed? Well, unfortunately, there are about 50 million Americans that would be at risk and should not take it. That would be pregnant women, anybody with a weakened immune system, or a serious dermatologic disease like eczema. All right, Dr. Sue Bailey. Dr. Bailey, thank you very much. You're welcome, John. Creepy. I don't know why that, that segment is particularly creepy to me. It's just the way that they're talking. Perhaps their voices sound like they're in a, a dark winter simulation. But listen to this as he immediately pivots again. So they pivoted from... A story about how, you know, we don't need to worry about stretching our forces too thin if we wage a simultaneous war in Iraq, to a segment about the smallpox vaccination rollout, back to something using the smallpox vaccination rollout to segue to another segment about uh, an impending Iraq war. It's fucking nuts. Check this out. Many of the American troops on assignment in the Persian Gulf will be getting or have already received the smallpox vaccine. Today, a show of force there. U.S. troops are conducting the largest live-fire exercise right on Iraq's border in Kuwait. NBC's David Bloom is there. Today, under a hazy sun in the northern Kuwaiti desert, a dress rehearsal for perhaps the next Persian Gulf War. Kind of sad foreshadowing, actually, there that we go from a smallpox segment cut to a, a segment with David Bloom. I don't want to spoil why, but it's it's sad and it's kind of uh, will be sort of something that ties into the way that this particular episode of this series ends. Now, after that series of creepy pinballs from Iraq to smallpox back to Iraq and that NBC News segment, a day later, CNN runs a segment with Aaron Burnett. I don't actually have the video clip of it, but I have a transcript of the segment. 
from December 22nd, 2002, that Bush is, quote, great after getting the smallpox vaccine. President Bush is feeling great. One day after receiving a smallpox vaccine, a White House spokesperson said Sunday. Bush in Camp David, Maryland, through Christmas, had dinner Saturday with his father and mother, took a walk and watched a movie, said spokesperson Adam Levine. He feels great, Levine said. By getting the vaccine, Bush joined about 500,000 troops who were ordered to receive the inoculation. The vaccine in some cases can sicken and sometimes kill recipients. The vaccination was administered by a senior immunization technician from Walter Reed Army Medical Center under the supervision of the White House doctor and its medical unit staff, according to the statement. I wonder why it doesn't say the name of the senior immunization technician. On Saturday, a senior administration official said Bush will be monitored, but the physician does not expect any complications. Bush announced December 13th that members of the military and some medical personnel would be vaccinated against smallpox as protection against a possible terrorist attack. The president has made it clear that he was obtaining the smallpox vaccine in his position as commander-in-chief. Mamo said. Bush received the vaccine in his left arm at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time at the White House before departing for Camp David. There's no real explanation in here at all of why Bush didn't, wasn't able to do this in front of cameras. If this was a sort of a symbolic gesture to you know, put himself at risk to make the rest of the public feel like he was sort of putting himself at their level... He, it's like sort of like Obama drinking the glass of water. It, it would be like if Obama just said he drank the glass of water at that Flint meeting, but didn't, and didn't even go in front of cameras or people to do it. It'd be like if Bush told cameras to come and film him, and he used like a fake like trick prop needle to inject the smallpox vaccine in his arm. The guy pushed the plunger down, and it actually nothing came out into his arm. But no, there's no evidence whatsoever that Bush uh, actually did this. And why did no one else in his cabinet do it? How high up did the orders go for the military? Was the Defense Department required to do it? Was the Secretary of Defense required to do it? Was Colin Powell required to do it? Were all generals required to do it? 500,000 military personnel is a lot. But my guess is that these were mostly for the troops that were being reserved for being used to go to Iraq and to fight in the Middle East. Based on the, yes, the fake war on terror. If you're just listening to this podcast for the first time, I hate to break it to you. The war on terror is fake. It's bullshit. It's a bullshit concept. Waging a war against a tactic. Now, at this point, there was just so much propaganda being blasted out about this smallpox program and the idea of smallpox and smallpox, smallpox, smallpox everywhere that public health organizations and I'm not actually 100% sure of what this organization is. So if someone's listening and is like, Robbie, you didn't do any research. You have no fucking idea what you're talking about. I apologize. I don't know exactly what this organization is, but I'll just read to you what's on Wikipedia about it. Um, the American Public Health Association, uh, APHA, is a Washington, D.C.-based professional organization, public health professionals in the United States. It was founded in 1872, been around for quite a long time. Um, and the executive director of it is someone named George C. Benjamin. Now, this guy has been the executive director for an extremely long time of this organization, 
because he was back in December 23rd, 2002, when he appeared on C-SPAN, and C-SPAN described it as, Dr. Benjamin talked about smallpox. He responded to audience calls, faxes, and electronic mail, and responded to common misconceptions about smallpox. I guess from his perspective, he was going there trying to set the record straight and, you know, fact check or whatever, but it still just heavily plays into this fucking fear-mongering campaign. And at no point is he like, hey, why are they hyping this shit up? He's just sort of kind of acting resigned to the fact that this is basically just going to be a vaccination rollout program. And I think on some level, he's even, you know, maybe he didn't agree with it. He's just sort of resigned to it, but he's he's taking it more seriously than it ended up being. I mean, he's taking it just as seriously as it was meant to be taken before it fell apart even more. So I'm going to play you some clips from his C-SPAN appearance. Is there a common misconception that Americans have about this smallpox vaccination program that's been in the news lately? Americans don't know a lot about uh, smallpox, unfortunately. They think that it's been, uh, disease has been around currently, has not been around for over 20 years. Um, they also believe that um, there's current treatment for it once you've gotten um, signs and symptoms of the disease. And those are very, very common misperceptions. When was the first series of vaccinations given? Well, this disease has been around um, over 3,000 years. Um, it was um, actually the word vaccination comes from vaccinia vaccine uh, from the virus. So um, in the 1700s, um, this vaccine has been given for, for a long, long, long time. And this was going back to, I think, some of the things I've read back to the early 60s. Or were, were children necessarily given the vaccination just as part of their other shots that they got at that time? Absolutely. Almost all of us of my age. Uh, got smallpox vaccine as a child. And we stopped doing this uh, uh, several, several years ago. And the reason we did was because there was a very aggressive effort by the public health community to get rid of smallpox. And in fact, it's probably the only disease that we've actually, through a concerted national effort and international effort, actually gotten rid of. And if someone got the vaccination back, the president's uh, announcement for the smallpox vaccination, your thoughts on it in general? Is it a good proposal in, in regards to uh, treating medical workers first and then stemming out from there? In general, yes. What we've um, called for is a measured uh, approach to doing this. The fact that um, uh, we, we're a different population than we were today um, in terms of the number of diseases that we have, the fact that there's not a lot of clinicians around that really know how to give the shot, uh, the fact that our population today doesn't tolerate the kind of complications today that we tolerated years ago, we think that this was a, a, an approach that ought to be followed. Uh, we've, a lot has been made about the risk regarding this vaccination. What specifically is the risk to Americans as far as their health and well-being? Sure. Um, well, the good news is that the risk is generally low. The problem, however, is um, 15 out of every million people that get the shot will have some type of serious complication, and one or two of those people might die. Um, the other problem with this um, particular vaccination uh, is that it's a live virus, and you can actually spread it from one person to another. And that's not smallpox. That's the actual vaccination um, itself. We're going to talk about the vaccination program with Dr. Benjamin. We welcome your phone calls on one of three lines this morning. When someone gets the vaccination, walk us through the process of the actual vaccination and what happens to the person afterward. Okay. Well, usually you clean off the skin and then you get multiple punctures. Unlike your flu shot, this, this requires multiple punctures of the skin. Um, and then over the next several days, you get some redness and tenderness. You actually get a big sore on the arm. Now, on the same evening that 
C-SPAN runs this uh, segment, this live call-in segment with Dr. Georges Benjamin from the uh, APHA. They also run a very creepy, dark winter-esque John Hopkins slash Brookings think tank panel that's based on a computer simulation of a smallpox bioterrorism outbreak. It's quite creepy the way that the guy who was in charge of running this simulation sort of talks about these fake people who are dying from smallpox, how they go to the morgue and using colors to describe them. You know, this guy's black, he goes to the morgue, so and so duh. It's 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 actually just sort of weird and and it seems sort of crass and inappropriate for them to be using language like that, even like in this simulation. But you just sort of get a taste of how cold equations he and how weird it is that like Brookings, this foreign policy think tank, was this tapped into these sort of numbers games running pandemic simulations about smallpox bioterrorism. And they also discussed the vaccination rollout program as well. So I'm going to play you some clips from that and comment along the way. This morning, public health analysts held a briefing to demonstrate the effects of a bioterrorism outbreak of smallpox. Following the demonstration, they discussed their strategy for vaccinating against the disease. This event took place at the Brookings Institution here in Washington. Welcome to Brookings for a discussion of one of the more pressing policy problems on our agenda, uh, bioterror. Thanks very much, Carol. Thank you all for being here. Uh, we'd like to show you uh, work we've been doing to develop a containment strategy for smallpox using this individual-based or agent-based computational approach. First, we want to talk a little bit about individual-based or agent-based models, then tell you specifically about the county-level epidemic model we've built. Using that model, talk about smallpox vaccination strategies. The idea of doing the model at this level of resolution was to build the simplest model that captures the main components reflected in the data on smallpox transmission. Here's a picture of this idealized two-town county. We've depicted a northern town that's comprised of squares, which we will call square town, and a southern town, all of whose members are circles, which we will refer to as circle town. You see one green agent. He's home uh, with his family right now. This is the picture of this county at night uh, there are four, there are 400 people per town, 100 households. So you see each of these squares has four individuals in it. There are four circles in each of the southern households, four squares in each of the northern households. And at night, they're all home with other members of their household. And when they contract the disease, they go to the hospital. And you can see hospital workers from each town depicted in the hospital. And if they survive, they go back into circulation. And if they die, they move on to the morgue. So you're going to see events transpire in this artificial two-town space with this cycle of day and night repeating, and we're going to color code agents for their disease state as they progress through the phases of smallpox in a typical individual. Green, yellow, red for the rash. Our agent has now developed the full smallpox rash. I'll stop it. You see he's gone to the hospital where we assume he is diagnosed correctly. Things continue. I'll speed it up in a minute, but you get the idea. All right, he went to the morgue because he died. Uh, smallpox has a 30% case fatality rate, meaning that about 30% of the cases die and another 70% recover. I'll speed this up. All of these movies are posted on the Brookings website and you can play them. 
So seemingly sensible strategies like vaccinate the entire town where the first case is detected will do poorly because by the time you've detected the first case, the disease may have spread far beyond the initial town. We'll let it go a little further. You begin to see white agents who've recovered, more black agents in the morgue, and we'll just let this play out as I drag it ahead. So you can see what I mean by sort of crass, maybe inappropriate language choice. More black agents in the morgue. Maybe they should have came up with a different type of color coding than that one. In the base case, with no interventions of any sort, everyone in this county eventually contracts smallpox. All 800 members of the county get smallpox, and 30% of them die. The easy part is this. If, if there's a confirmed release, then of course the U.S. government must provide vaccine, and they are stockpiling enough vaccine to do that. But that's really the easy part. The hard part is what do you do before any release to contain the epidemic and ease the burden of further vaccination? We have one important piece of science leverage in designing such a policy, and it is this. Epidemics are nonlinear stochastic threshold phenomena. What that means is that sometimes they fizzle out. That's really what it amounts to. And the trick is, what can we do before an attack to arrange that an epidemic fizzles out? Now, that comment is interesting for a couple of reasons. One of them is that he's mentioning the idea of a deliberate release, which means bioterrorism, and that he's arguing for you know, the idea of mass vaccination before such an event. Now, you know, I guess that's not that interesting. We've been hearing stuff like that this whole time. I guess what is interesting is the omission here in this Brookings, John Hopkins presentation. They don't go too much into uh, potential suspects. I don't even know if Iraq even comes up. And that's not what you would expect from Brookings based on the reputation they have today. But I guess back then, right after 9-11, or like we're here like in late 2002, actually, they were just doing sort of these mathematical simulations of smallpox attacks and doing presentations on them. I think the more hardcore neocon bioterrorism rhetoric uh, was coming out of think tanks like American Enterprise Institute, Project for the New American Century, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, maybe even CSIS. Uh, probably the Hudson Institute too, I would imagine. I'm not sure who else. But one thing we do know is that the Rand Corporation, which Fred Kagan also did a lot of work for, was also running their own simulation that showed different results. And someone uh, questions one of the people in charge of this simulation from the audience and brings up their study. So this just goes to show how many of these DC sort of military industrial complex think tanks were doing these, were running these games. I, I just wanted to, to make sure I understand how you're differentiating your, your model from the RAND study, especially when it comes to the mass vaccinations. Now, they also assumed a 60% vaccination rate under a mass vaccination, and they estimate nearly 500 deaths. Is what you're saying is that under your model, your 60% comes from these people that are specifically previously vaccinated? Right. And so... So the risk, the risk is vastly lower for that group. Do you... Do you how much lower? Yeah, yeah uh, they, the best data we have from this are from a couple studies from 1968 toward the end of the real smallpox epidemics that we used to have. Uh, and that the, uh, uh, the, the, 
the, the serious complication rates from vaccinia in persons not previously immunized is around 10 to 30 per million. These are life-threatening, serious uh, uh, events. Uh, with now, I know I've already used the comment, this seems staged or this feels scripted a few times already in this podcast. So I'm already pushing the limits here of a, a podcast that's not supposed to be, you know, a flaky, head-in-the-cloud sort of, uh, you know, conspiracy dopamine podcast. But forgive me for using this again by saying that I think it's really unusual that a CNN reporter asks this next question, which I just frankly do not believe what she's saying at all. And basically, I'll just spoil it. She's basically uh, in the Q&A session of this John Hopkins Brookings smallpox outbreak simulation. She's asking, you know, when is this uh, going to be available to people? I got calls. We were getting calls so many calls right after 9-11 from parents asking when they can get their kids the smallpox vaccine. Like a CNN reporter stands up and asks this question. Listen to this. This is crazy. Christy Fogg from CNN. After September 11th, we got a lot of phone calls from mothers who were saying, where can I get the smallpox vaccination? My kids haven't been vaccinated. What are you going to tell them whenever they're not a revaccination candidate, but they want their kids to get the vaccine? I think this one's in my court. The, uh, um... One way to think about this revaccination strategy is that the, the reason to be revaccinated isn't necessarily to protect yourself, but to protect the entire population. Uh, and there are other times where we as a, as a, as a society have, have used this general strategy to immunize one group to protect another group. A good example is German measles. I mean, I don't even know how to describe some of this stuff and how surreal it seems. I mean. How could that possibly be real that they got so many phone calls of parents saying, when can I get my kids vaccinated against smallpox? That makes no fucking sense. That's crazy. I mean, this is one of the most memory-hold things from the Bush administration. It really happened. It, it really scared people. It really contributed to the fear and was also used to bolster the Iraq war. But, I mean, the idea that the propaganda was this big, that... People were calling in saying, where can I get the vaccine? I mean, completely unbelievable, full stop. I'm just speechless. I don't even know what else to say about it. it. Just why would she make up this lie? I mean, what am I suggesting that she just made this up? Yeah. Why did she do it? I don't fucking know. It's crazy though. So there was a poll conducted actually on January 23rd. So we're skipping forward about a month um, after the program was sort of rolled out. It's start date wasn't going to happen for about a month after it was announced. So we're getting really, really close to the actual, technically the rollout date, the date in which these vaccines would start to be administered, starting with the 500,000 military personnel. So on January 23rd, now, a poll was conducted by an organization, which I actually unfortunately don't know what organization this was, it was published in the North England Journal of Medicine in 2003. And it was a poll basically trying to figure out the public's response to the smallpox threat. That was the title of the poll. And basically what they did was they asked people basic questions about smallpox. And they asked people about what rights they would be willing to have taken away in case of a smallpox bioterror attack. And then they were also asked questions sort of gauging their level of being propagandized or fear-mongered, sort of asking like, how likely would it be um, that Iraq or another country would attack us with smallpox? 
if we attack them. And here's what's crazy. 60% of the total respondents to this poll, out of a sampling of 1,006 adults, 60% of the respondents say that a smallpox bioterror attack is likely by Iraq if the U.S. invades it. That is fucking nuts. The poll concludes that the majority of the respondents have a number of beliefs about smallpox and smallpox vaccination that are false. The majority believe that there is an effective treatment for smallpox. The majority of respondents to the poll said they want to be vaccinated. There was strong support among the respondents for several proposed state emergency powers. 20% of the respondents said that an attack against the United States from Iraq with smallpox would be very likely. But 44% thought that it would be somewhat likely. So when you combine that together, it's 64%. 61% of the respondents said they would choose vaccination if it were offered as a precaution against a bioterror threat. If there are a bioterror outbreak and there was a smallpox case in their community, 88% of the people who responded to the poll said they would take the vaccine. 95% of the respondents said they would agree to be quarantined by the government for two to three weeks if they were exposed to smallpox, but did not have symptoms of the disease. 77% said that if they were told they had smallpox and needed to be isolated, they would agree to go to a special health facility. (laughs) Amazing. Fascinating insight into the thinking of the American public at the time that 64% of the people who responded just and intuitively, just because of what was in the air, because of this rollout program coming out, because of what they were seeing in the news, this intuitively thought that Iraq had some possibility of retaliating against the U.S. with smallpox, or that al-Qaeda did. And apparently the question was worded in such a way where it was like, how likely is it do you think terrorists will attack the United States with smallpox on behalf of Iraq if we invade Iraq? So sort of implying this weird, again, this imaginary three-way connection, Bush, you know, triangulation thing where it's like, yeah, Iraq working with terrorists. A day after this very revealing and crazy poll gets released on January 24th, 2003 is technically the official start date for when the smallpox vaccines were going to start being administered to first responders, healthcare workers, and soldiers. Now, what was the infrastructure like in this initial rollout? How did this look? Well, actually, I haven't been able to find very many insider reports from this point on in terms of here's what the you know inside look is in terms of how the program's going from the inside, like as this was happening. It was seen a little bit shielded from public view from this point on, interestingly enough, after all this hype. Sort of like uh, Bush's own smallpox injection was shielded from public view to the point where we have to question if he even fucking got one. Now, at a certain point, they you know, were going to expand it more for the general public after uh, they got to week 10. That was sort of a milestone timeline for them. Week 10 into this program, which would have been approximately on April 4, 2003, was going to sort of be the you know time that they would reflect back on how it was going Um, How many people got vaccinated so far? What's going on? Now, by week 10, what they found out was that it was going extremely poorly. They actually had so little data by week 10 that they couldn't even evaluate whether the program was proceeding as safely as possible. 
they couldn't even evaluate the safety on it based on that little data because they just assumed that the amount of people who were going to be vaccinated by week 10 would be much higher. And for whatever reason, it's not clear, the rollout of it was extremely, extremely poorly done. Like the actual infrastructure rollout for distributing and giving out the vaccines. Even on a military level, it seems like it was. But like I said, we don't get very many details until things start to go wrong with the vaccines they're administering in the military and among healthcare workers. On January 28th, 2003, we get Jerome Howard's, as far as I can tell, his only officially signed document that he releases on behalf of the CDC and Health and Human Services. Declaration regarding administration of smallpox countermeasures. Agency, Office of the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Action. Notice. The Secretary of the Department of Health Services is issuing the notice pursuant to Section 224P2A of the Public Health Services Act to make a declaration regarding administration of smallpox countermeasures. The Secretary provides policy determinations regarding administration of countermeasures and declares that a potential bioterrorist incident makes it advisable to administer on a voluntary basis covered countermeasures specified in the declaration for prevention or treatment of smallpox or control or treatment of adverse events related to smallpox vaccination. The attacks of September 11th and October 2001 have heightened concern that terrorists may have access to the smallpox virus and may attempt to use it against the American public and U.S. government facilities abroad. The president announced the smallpox vaccination program on December 13, 2002. Given the potential for a bioterrorist incident, administration of smallpox countermeasures is advisable within the terms of this declaration. Then it reiterates the actual smallpox rollout plan. It says that the smallpox vaccine is only being given out to emergency workers, healthcare workers, first responders, emergency response workers, although it doesn't mention soldiers here for some reason. It also vaguely says that people abroad working in various capacities for the U.S. will also have to take it. doesn't specify who. But this is really interesting. It actually spins the liability protections for the manufacturers here as a good thing for public health. This is part six of this declaration. Liability protections for manufacturers and distribution of smallpox countermeasures in the hospitals, healthcare facilities, and healthcare workers who will receive them and treat potentially infected smallpox cases are integral to ensuring maximum participation in the vaccination program. So you're going to get your vaccinations more smoothly if none of these companies can get sued, basically. Don't sue them. Let's let them be protected from being sued, because if we don't, they're not going to work with us as smoothly as they would otherwise. Section 7. And this one is interesting because it just straight up refers to Section 304 of the Homeland Security Act that I referenced earlier, that that's where the liability protection was originally baked into. It says Section 304 of the Homeland Security Act is intended to alleviate liability concerns and therefore ensure the vaccine is available if necessary to protect the public health. Then it sort of describes what a smallpox vaccine is, how it's given out. It also is explained that Liability for any healthcare entities, like if you go to a hospital and get treated for smallpox, there's full liability protection for them under these new rules in case of a smallpox bioterror attack. It's explaining which government entities get these powers and who will administer and enforce these things. It talks about how sodofavir could be used to treat 
smallpox infection if as a last case resort, even though it's an HIV drug. It talks about vaccinia immune globulin, uh, that that may be needed in case somebody gets a bad vaccine reaction. And then it just goes on and on. For further information, contact Jerome S. Hauer, Acting Assistant Secretary for Public Health Emergency Preparedness. But what's more interesting, I think, than this actual declaration is something that I didn't quite get a chance to fully explain earlier, and that is the official smallpox rollout plans as given to the state governments in detailed document form published by the CDC. They originally published in 2002. They remained on the CDC's website until 2010, and they were fully removed. But between the time they were posted in 2002 and around, I would say, mid-2003 or late-2003, they were revised and added to multiple times. And I don't know how many media organizations picked up on this at the time or actually were looking at these documents themselves. They're extremely detailed. There's very detailed contact tracing forms, intake forms, surveillance forms, crazy stuff that I you know, just was surprised to come across. But one of the more interesting parts of this that was allegedly written by or partly written by Jerome Hauer is Guide C Part 2, the quarantine guidelines that were not actually released and put on the CDC's website until around this time, until the, the program starts to be rolled out. Um, and I don't know why they left this part out of the guide at the time, but maybe it's because it's some of the most draconian stuff in the guide. And this actually won't come out until March 20th, 2003, this revised quarantine guide uh, guidelines rules. It's about eight pages long. You can actually find it if you go to the anthrax cache, then go to 06 smallpox cache, go to 2002 CDC smallpox vaccination guide, scroll down um, until you get to G, guide C part two. And in guide C part two, you just see quarantine law, state quarantine laws, da-da-da, gives the government the authority to quarantine an individual who enforces a quarantine, who detains an infected or exposed person, how due process is accommodated, and what actions government may take if a person disobeys a quarantine order. The law would give state officials broad powers to close buildings, take over hospitals, and order quarantines during a biological attack. Now, it would basically relinquish any medical privacy in the sense that a health officer who was administering smallpox vaccines or who was in charge of Basically, there's like these smallpox response teams that will be created. And these people have authorities like being able to get any information they want from pharmacies, um, being able to get any information they want from people's workplaces to find out if they missed work, um, veterinary reporting. Uh, they get access to data from law enforcement agencies. They're in charge of the seizure and destruction of contaminated articles. Um, they're allowed to confiscate cell phones and other walkie-talkie type equipment from people. They're allowed to procure hospitals and transfer patients to them. They're allowed to procure hotel rooms and drive-to facilities. They're allowed to procure or confiscate medicines and vaccines. So they could basically just seize anyone's property and be like, we need, we have, you just have a bunch of medicines we need. So we're just going to take them all. Basically, the management of persons as part of the duties, if you're on one of these smallpox response teams, is the identification of exposed persons, mandatory medical examinations, collect lab specimens and perform tests, rationing of medicines, tracking and follow-up of persons, 
isolation and quarantine, logistical authority for patient management, suspension of licensing authority for medical personnel from outside jurisdictions. Responding to a case of smallpox may require the use of a variety of emergency public health and containment measures. These measures would include active surveillance of presumed infected individual and their contacts, isolation, separation of a person or group of persons from other persons to prevent the spread of infection, and population-wide quarantine measures which restrict activities or limit movement of individuals. This may require suspension of large public gatherings, closing of public places, restriction of travel, air, rail, water, motor vehicle, and pedestrian, and or cordon sanitaire, literally a sanitary cord or line around a quarantined area guarded to prevent spread of disease by restricting passage into and out of the area. For smallpox, a single confirmed case warrants immediate public health action. The successful implementation of individual and population-level quarantine measures hinge on numerous factors, including prior identification of relevant legal authorities, persons, or organizations empowered to invoke and enforce such authorities, public trust and compliance with government directives, and assured vaccination and other protection of personnel required to implement the enforce quarantine measures. Now, this creepy chart at the very end on the very last page, on page eight, sort of a flow chart looking thing. Um, there are quite a few interesting flow charts in here and some really horrendous photographs too. On guide B, part three of three, uh, you can find adverse reaction photographs. And there's, oh my God, I mean, there's some really uh, gnarly photographs of, of people who get really bad reactions to vaccinia which is a live virus that the vaccine uses to immunize you from smallpox. Now back to the timeline. On June 28th, the evening of June 28th, Bush gives his infamous, probably his most famous, but famous for the wrong reasons, State of the Union speech. Out of all of his State of the Union speeches, all eight of them, this one was the most memorable. And the reason it was the most memorable is because of what people call the 16 words controversy. And those 16 words were, is when Bush said, the British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. Wikipedia says that this single sentence is now known as the 16 words. Now, apparently this was um, encouraged by David Frum. He helped. Uh, figure out how to put this phrase into the speech. And this started, of course, the whole Valerie Plame affair, where somebody inside the Bush administration outed Valerie Plame because she was the wife of Joe Wilson, who was the guy who was sent to Africa to check on this claim, uh, even though he decided that it was bunk when he came back, but the Bush administration ran with it anyways, as evident in this speech. So Joe Wilson decided to leak the story of him not finding any evidence of this uranium thing. Um, And it basically erupted in this big controversy. So I guess this is why it's called the 16 words controversy. But, you know, I can't help but think based on just how conspiratorial I am. I mean, I hate to say it. I am. uh, That why did this get so much attention? I mean, why, why was this lie that Bush told in the speech? Let's just deduce it down to this, what the actual words are. This lie about seeking uranium in Africa. Why was this lie that Bush was saying more egregious or more 
like bolstering the war propaganda or getting people fear-mongered than the smallpox thing was. I mean, doesn't Bush deserve heat also for hyping people up into a frenzy over the smallpox rollout? I mean, this is not an imaginary thing. I've just shown you hours and hours of evidence of how serious they were taking this. So this this uranium in Africa thing just seems to me kind of just like an extra thing they just threw into the State of the Union address. You know, just a little extra uh, spice thrown in there. Let's give it a little jolt. But, I mean, there's so much stuff in the State of the Union and leading up to it that's about biological weapons. Because WMDs was a metonym. It was a code for anthrax, mostly. Biological weapons more broadly. But if you want to look at it just broadly about biological weapons, it's about smallpox and anthrax. And just so you remember, and you know, in case people have forgotten how much of the State of the Union and how much of the Iraq War pitch before Colin Powell does an infamous UN speech was leaning on bioweapons, listen to part of Bush's speech. Just listen to the opening part of it when he talks about his WMD's programs. And then I'm going to briefly interject and talk about the next part of his speech. To show exactly where it is hiding its banned weapons, lay those weapons out for the world to see, and destroy them as directed. Nothing like this has happened. The United Nations concluded in 1999 that Saddam Hussein had biological weapons sufficient to produce over 25,000 liters of anthrax. Enough doses to kill several million people. He hasn't accounted for that material. He has given no evidence that he has destroyed it. The United Nations concluded that Saddam Hussein had material sufficient to produce more than 38,000 liters of botulinum toxin, enough to subject millions of people to death by respiratory failure. He hadn't accounted for that material. He's given no evidence that he has destroyed it. Our intelligence officials estimate that Saddam Hussein had the materials to produce as much as 500 tons of sarin, mustard, and VX nerve agent. In such quantities, these chemical agents could also kill untold thousands. He's not accounted for these materials. He has given no evidence that he has destroyed them. We have the terrorists on the run. We're keeping them on the run. One by one, the terrorists are learning the meaning of American justice. So yes, Bush mentions not just anthrax in his State of the Union speech, but he also mentions smallpox, which I'm sure most people do not remember at all. I didn't remember it. I completely blanked on it. I was pretty shocked to learn that he said it. And I think one thing I forgot to mention in the last comment that I made was that I do think to some extent this 16 words controversy, making it all about this WMD lie about the uranium in Africa, really takes away from how many other lies that they were running with before and bolstering these lies with things like a real smallpox vaccination rollout program and all the hysteria they generated about anthrax and the mobile biological weapons labs. And I really do think the 16 words controversy seems like it takes away from that. So limited hangout, let's just say that. But 
let's hear Bush's comment about smallpox in the remaining part of the State of the Union. And I think maybe even mentions anthrax again. But let's play the clip. As we fight this war, we will remember where it began here in our own country. This government is taking unprecedented measures to protect our people and defend our homeland. We've intensified security at the borders and ports of entry, posted more than 50,000 newly trained federal screeners in airports, begun inoculating troops and first responders against smallpox, and are deploying the nation's first early warning network of sensors to detect biological attack. I ask you tonight to add to our future security with a major research and production effort to guard our people against bioterrorism called Project BioShield. The budget I send you will propose almost $6 billion to quickly make available effective vaccines and treatments against agents like anthrax, botulinum toxin, Ebola, and plague. We must assume that our enemies would use these diseases as weapons and we must act before the dangers are upon us. Now, what's really interesting to me about the wording specifically of the very last thing that Bush said in pushing Project BioShield, which I'm going to comment on, by the way, but I just want to comment on the wording because I think it's very specific. Whoever wrote this shit dialed this shit in because here's what they're trying to do. You can divide into three categories now. The different ways that the Bush administration was trying to push preemptive warfare on the American mind as being justifiable and forms of defense that would also be preemptive. For example, believing in the idea of preemptive military strikes to basically prevent a terrorist attack as justifiable. That was part of the war on terror. They want, that was one category. Preemptive military strikes were now justifiable in this new type of war. Category number two, waging a war on a tactic. This idea of going after criminals before they commit a crime. Dangerous, quote unquote, radicals or terrorists who rhetorically do us harm, but don't actually materially support any people who are causing us harm. Pre-crime. They've gotten us to believe in that concept. But now we're being pushed a third psychological preemptive concept. And this was the idea of preemptively inoculating ourselves in case of a bioterrorist attack. That basically this concept was a form of basically protecting yourself in a war. We were in a war. And this was a third concept. So I think that's really interesting that they didn't get us to go there. They got us to go there in terms of security, infrastructure, surveillance, in that regard. But this idea of doing it to yourself, inoculating yourself with a pretty dangerous vaccine just because you are a soldier in this fight in the war on terror, whether you liked it or not. They didn't quite get that far, but it seems like Bush's wording, it seems like that was the mindset that they wanted to push. So I kind of just wonder if David Frum's one of the people who wrote this speech. I mean, this is some real evil PNAC psychological manipulation kind of shit. I'm also fascinated about how much money Bush is asking for for Project BioShield back then. How much money has been re-injected into the sector since then? And which presidents have gotten the most money injected into it? Because Bush seems like he's really was a, basically a salesman for this bill. I don't remember him uh, pushing this hard for the Patriot Act. I don't remember him pushing 
this hard for other forms of money injection into certain defense spending bills. Maybe he did, but this seems like something that he was really passionate about. And when I say he was really passionate about, I mean the neocons who are basically puppeteering this motherfucker were passionate about. Now, the other person who was really passionate about this, besides Scooter Libby, was the guy that Scooter, Li- the guy that Scooter Libby advised, Dick Cheney, who was, quote-unquote, energized by smallpox. It's a quote you've, that I've actually seen in multiple articles. Um, Dick Cheney actually pumps Project BioShield. He spoke to Republican Party members at an economic policy issues and national security meet and greet. And there, of course, he talked about efforts to coordinate international efforts to combat global terrorism. He spoke at this event about three days after Bush did his State of the Union speech. Here's what Dick Cheney had to say. Since the attacks of 9-11, every level of our government has taken important steps to protect America against terrorism. We created the Department of Homeland Security to mobilize against a wide range of possible threats. More than 50,000 federal screeners are deployed at our airports. We've put more marshals on airplanes and stepped up security at our power plants, ports, and border crossings. And we began inoculating troops and first responders against smallpox and are stockpiling enough smallpox vaccine for every American. We're using new technologies to detect weapons of mass destruction. We're developing a terrorist threat integration center to merge and analyze all threat information in a single location of the federal government. And we are launching Project BioShield, a comprehensive effort to develop and to make available modern, effective drugs and vaccines to protect against attack by biological and chemical weapons or other dangerous agents. With these measures, we seek to guard our nation against new and fearsome dangers. But while the threats we face are unprecedented, our responsibilities are very familiar. Against such enemies, America and the civilized world have only one option. Wherever terrorists operate, we will find them. Wherever they dwell, we will hunt them down. We will also continue our efforts to address the very serious danger posed by the outlaw regime in Iraq. We will not permit a brutal dictator with ties to terror and a record of feckless aggression to dominate the Middle East and to threaten the United States. Twelve years ago, Saddam Hussein agreed to disarm Iraq of all of its weapons of mass destruction. For twelve years, he's violated that agreement, pursuing chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons even while UN inspectors were in Iraq. Now, keep in mind, this is Dick Cheney at an economic policy meet and greet with Republicans. And this is a pretty eerie part that, you know, it's not super shocking, but it's a little bit surprising because I didn't realize how much of the Colin Powell propaganda lines had already been basically written before Colin Powell's speech, uh, seemingly a couple months before. Uh, because this is January 31st, and listen to Dick Cheney's wording here. Keep his wording here in mind when I later play clips from the Colin Powell speech. Very similar. Take a listen. Some time ago, the UN confirmed that Iraq had sufficient material to produce over 25,000 liters of anthrax, more than 38,000 liters of botulinum toxin, 
and as much as 500 tons of sarin, mustard, and VX nerve agents. We know that he had some 30,000 munitions capable of delivering chemical agents in several mobile biological weapons laboratories designed to produce germ warfare agents on the move. Yet Saddam Hussein has neither accounted for nor destroyed these instruments of terror. And his desire for nuclear weapons is undiminished. Saddam Hussein is continuing his decade-old game of defiance, delay, and deception. He's blocking unrestricted aerial reconnaissance, as called for in the UN resolutions. His security agents are hiding documents and materials from UN inspectors. His intelligence agents are posing as scientists. And Saddam Hussein has decreed that real scientists who cooperate with UN inspectors will be killed along with their families. Saddam Hussein's pursuit of weapons of mass destruction poses a grave danger, not only to his neighbors, but also to the United States. His regime aids and protects terrorists, including members of Al-Qaeda. He could decide secretly to provide weapons of mass destruction to terrorists for their use against us. And as the President said on Tuesday night, it would take just one vial, one canister, one crate to bring a day of horror to our nation unlike any we've ever known. Now out of those three scenarios, one vial, one canister, one crate, which one is the one that's the most, probably the most present on people's minds? I would say the vial comment. We're rolling out a smallpox program in the United States right now. We got hit with anthrax letters just a year ago, pretty much little over a year ago. There has never been a nuclear terrorist attack. The only chemical weapons terrorist attack was that Japanese cult uh, that released sarin on the subway. Yeah, they're, they're throwing in three different things at once in terms of what kind of weapons will be used. But again, WMDs was mostly code for anthrax and in a larger sense, biological weapons. But here's what's interesting is Cheney sort of gets a little defensive. Uh, preemptively. So I guess the Bush administration already knew that people would accuse them of launching another war that had nothing to do with the war on terror. So listen to this. That's why confronting the threat posed by Iraq is not a distraction from the war on terror. It is absolutely crucial to winning the war on terror. Next Wednesday, Secretary of State Powell will present information and intelligence to the UN Security Council about Iraq's ongoing defiance. Our purpose is not simply to follow a process. It is to end the terrible threats to the civilized world. As the President said the other night, the course of this nation does not depend upon the decisions of others. Whatever action is required, whenever action is necessary, we will defend the freedom and the security of the American people. And I don't know why, but the, the very last thing he said reminds me of that line from the Three Amigos. Like even his tone of voice does. Like, wherever there is trouble, we'll be there. Wherever there is injustice, you will find us. Wherever there is suffering, we'll be there. Wherever liberty is threatened, you will find the three amigos. I, 
I don't know what it is about that. The intonation of his voice reminds me, and maybe it's not the three amigos I'm thinking of. It might be something else. Basically, what he's saying is he's trying to prepare people for the fact that they're going to defy whatever decision the UN makes, saying that the US will just do whatever the fuck it wants. Fuck you, motherfucker. Basically, what Cheney's saying here. Um, trying to prepare people for that eventuality. Because, of course, they already decided to go into the fucking Iraq. They didn't care what the UN came up with. They didn't care what they were going to think after Colin Powell's presentation. I mean, yeah, they probably would have preferred that the UN voted for it, but they were going to do it whatever. He's saying it right here. But I, I must actually say that I now feel dumb because I, I thought that Colin Powell's speech was at least a couple of months from now, but now I'm looking on my notes, and it was... Um, just a week after this Cheney statement. So they were already preparing the wording, you know, a week before, pretty much word for word uh, for Colin Powell's speech. When I say they, I, I don't know exactly who, but obviously Cheney was in the loop of this. We know that Lawrence Wilkerson was also involved, but I don't know who else was involved. I'm assuming probably Scooter Libby was. Who else was? I don't know. Maybe we could find that out. On the same evening, Dick Cheney did this proto Colin Powell speech and, and said things that were almost verbatim to what Colin Powell would later say to the UN Security Council. An article comes out in the Associated Press called Soldier Has Reaction to Smallpox Vaccine by Laura Meckler. One soldier inoculated against smallpox has suffered a potentially serious skin reaction to the vaccine, and officials are investigating whether a second ill soldier also was reacting to the shot, the Pentagon said Friday. It was the first report of any serious reaction to Americans receiving the vaccinations, which began in December for the military and are now just getting underway for civilians. The first case, a 30-year-old army soldier at a U.S. base, was a skin reaction called generalized vaccinia, and officials were confident it was linked to the man's vaccination 10 days earlier. In the second case, a 26-year-old army soldier was admitted to an overseas military hospital for encephalitis, a brain disease that can cause paralysis or permanent neurological damage. Diagnostic studies could not confirm that his reaction was due to his smallpox vaccination, but he had received the vaccination eight days earlier, and the timing made authorities suspicious. They are investigating further. Both men now are in good condition, the Pentagon said. Pretty crazy. I mean, at least the you know, news is reporting on this. And it said that the military vaccinations begin in December and include up to a half million troops in high-risk areas, particularly Southwest Asia. So far, most of the reactions have been minor, the Pentagon said. 3% of the people being vaccinated had to take sick leave with an average length of absence of 1.5 days. The Defense Department would not release the names or locations of the two people who suffered more serious reactions. The soldier who got encephalitis was actually put into the hospital for a couple of weeks. And the last word on him was that he is markedly improved, is in good condition, and is expected to be released from the hospital soon, the Pentagon said. So this is probably one of the first insights we have into how the actual rollout is going for soldiers. The Pentagon wouldn't even release the names or the locations of who, of these soldiers. So um, 
I think at this point, it's seemingly they were very tight-lipped about what was happening. Very open about this program before, very public about it, um, talking very openly about it. And then all of a sudden, as soon as it starts, um, we just hear about it like this. But here comes Arlen Specter again, who, after I read you that article from Science Magazine, we know now was one of the behind-the-scenes pushers trying to push aside these hand-wringing public health officials, as some would say. He was the one who was really gunning for this. And Arlen Specter here is basically hosting a subcommittee, and he introduced this subcommittee. Um, it's a meeting on the uh, contingencies for responses to bioterrorist attacks. And it had all the public health officials testifying about implementing a national smallpox vaccination plan. And this happened right at the end of January, on the 29th of January, 2003. Jane Colasecchi, the director of Iowa Public Health Department, testified. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, testified. Julie Gerberding, director of the CDC, testified. Patrick Libby, the national assistant, the executive director of the National Assistant of County and City Health Officials. And then we also had Louis Bell, the medical director of Children's Hospital Philadelphia. James August, the director of American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And last but not least, Brian Strom, who really was one of the only dissenters out of all the people in this panel. Brian Strom had already gotten a little bit of press himself for openly talking about how he recommended against a program like this. And he gets more aggressive over time. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The hour of 9.30 having arrived, we will begin this hearing of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Labor, Health, Human Services, and Education. Today, we are going to be examining the issue of smallpox the risk which America and the world faces from a smallpox bioterrorist attack and what the risks are on inoculation, how well prepared the United States is to deal with this issue. And uh, it is the fourth in a series of hearings conducted by uh, this subcommittee. Uh, our first hearing uh, on the subject occurred in 1999, before 9-11, actually on March 16th of 1999. But initially, this is him trying to be really, really polite in a public hearing setting uh, with Arlen Specter there. But what's really fascinating is after Arlen Specter introduces this uh, hearing um, and just basically sucks Fauci's dick, uh, heaps all this praise on Julie Gerberding, um, you know, love fest to the both of them. When it gets to Brian Strom, uh, the guy who was basically one of the lone dissenters who got a chance to testify at this hearing, Arlen Specter literally gets up out of his chair, turns around, starts talking to his staffers, whispering in their ears, and then just gets up and walks away. As if to send like a signal to this guy, like, fuck you, motherfucker. You were one of the people like standing in my way trying to protect my grandkids from smallpox terror. You know, like, it, it's pretty crazy, actually, when you watch the video, how Spectre questions everybody else. He has an exchange with them, a friendly exchange with almost all the other witnesses. And when it comes to Brian Strom, man, he 
He just like ghosts him, doesn't ask a single follow-up question to this guy. And just after he does his time, that guy is fucking out of there. And that's it for him. And almost everybody else got a little, you know, back and forth, some questions with Arnold Specter. He just fucking, you could just tell that he was seething with almost like a weird rage that he wanted to project is like, I don't give a shit. You know, that really sends a signal to Brian Strom here. CDC on its implementation of a vaccination program. Dr. Strom is also professor and chair of the Department of Biostatistics and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. Received his MD from Johns Hopkins and his Master's of Public Health from the University of California at uh, Berkeley. Dr. Strom, uh, welcome, and uh, we look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, good morning, Mr. Chairman and, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you for the opportunity to come to speak with you this morning. Um, I, uh, as mentioned, my name is Brian Strom. I'm professor and chair of the Department of Biostatistics and Epidemiology and professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. I'm also chair of the Institute of Medicine Committee on the Smallpox Vaccine Program Implementation. The Institute of Medicine of the National Academies is an independent, non-governmental, non-profit organization operating under the 1863 Congressional Charter to the National Academy of Sciences. Based on these deliberations, the committee released its first letter report on January 17, 2003, entitled Review of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Smallpox Vaccine Program Implementation. The committee would first like to convey its appreciation for the hard work of CDC and its state and local partners in planning the pre-event smallpox vaccination program and helping it to become operational so quickly. CDC has done a tremendous job under very tight timelines. But what Brian Strom says... I think is really fascinating because he tries to put it very softly. And all he's saying is that the American people don't understand that this is not a normal vaccination program. It's not just that this is a vaccine that's not normal in the sense that it's more dangerous than all the other vaccines. It's not normal in the sense that this is a pre-event vaccination program, a what-if scenario that's basically based on the president's whims, deciding how realistic the scenario is or not based on information from his advisors and brian strum doesn't shy away from that and he really lays it out in a really logical way you know soft way but i don't see anyone could dispute what he's saying but it's like people had lost their fucking minds and thought that the president just throwing out all these random threats and color-coded terror levels that were changing all the time was was normal and that's okay to do even though it was like obvious fucking manipulation so listen to strom's response that really gets no response uh, from anybody um, there at the hearing at all. Description. I'll now focus the committee on the committee's four key messages and draw attention to its few, uh, a few of its recommendations. The first key message was to highlight the unique nature of the smallpox vaccination program as a public health component of a national bioterrorism preparedness policy, focusing on the delivery of clear, consistent, science-based information. The committee believes that it's critically important to stress to potential vaccinees and to the public that the pre-event smallpox vaccination program is not a typical public health program. Public health vaccination programs are typically undertaken knowing the risks of a disease and knowing that they outweigh the risks associated with the vaccination. With the pre-event smallpox vaccination program, the risk of the disease is based on a risk estimate derived by the president and his advisors based on national security issues. 
in this con context, the individuals being asked to take this vaccine are being asked to volunteer to join smallpox response teams for the benefit of the nation's bioterrorism preparedness. The committee believes that the unique aspect of the pre-event small smallpox vaccination program need to be communicated clearly and consistently to the American public. Because the smallpox vaccination program is unusual, it is important for the American public to understand that practices in these circumstances might differ from those of traditional vaccination programs. A clear understanding of the risks and unique aspects of the pre-event smallpox vaccination program will be necessary to ensure that all potential vaccinees can make an informed decision about whether or not to participate. Now, just about a week later, the morning that Colin Powell is supposed to make his speech to the UN Security Council. Forbes magazine and the Wall Street Journal both run an article about a new quasi-government program, a mixture of private sector and Pentagon government programs coming together to try to game out a response to a smallpox bioterror attack. Now, do you remember something that a lot of people, I don't know if you're my age, I'm 40 years old. Anyone who's my age probably remembers people who are more computer savvy people, maybe back in college in the early 2000s, late 90s, people having something that would run on their computer like a screensaver that was doing basically like using your computer as part of a, a supercomputer grid. Do you remember a software like that? Well, let me read you an article called Help IBM Take on Smallpox that might refresh your memory on what this software was. IBM is throwing its weight behind a public service effort to discover drugs to fight the smallpox virus. In a twist, the Armonk NY-based computing giant will ask millions of personal computer owners to donate time by running a screensaver on their machines. The resources of those individual machines will then be pooled to create a massive computing grid, a virtual computer that is more powerful than the fastest supercomputers. Now, have you guessed already what Software this sounds very much like. I'll give you a couple more seconds to guess. Okay, did you already guess what this sounds very similar to? The grid approach is not new. For several years, it has been possible to download a program called SETI at Home, which used computers to analyze data from radio telescopes in order to look for extraterrestrial civilizations. After funding for SETI, which stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, was cut, researchers looked around for a new way to get the computing power they needed. You can think of this as much more efficient and controlled version of SETI at home, says Joseph Jasinski, Worldwide Computing Operations Manager for IBM's Life Sciences Division. For the effort against smallpox, IBM is contributing a fleet of its e-server P690s running its DB2 database software. They will organize calculations running on more than 2 million personal computers. More than 35 million potential medicines will be tested and then compiled by the DOD. The computers will test to see if each of these drugs will see if they block proteins that the smallpox virus requires to function. For these problems, these systems are incredibly powerful. IBM's Jasinski estimates that for searching for smallpox drugs, the system will be 30 times more powerful than the world's 500 fastest supercomputers combined and 100 times more powerful than the fastest supercomputer ever invented. I do not predict a heavy overall effect on the industry, says Carl B. Fellbaum, 
president of the Biotechnology Industry Organization, a trade group, but the government is playing an increasing role in some biotech companies. And at the very end of the article, it says, visit grid.org to download the software from United Devices. Doesn't say much, though, in this Forbes magazine article what United Devices is. Well, this Wall Street Journal article published on the same morning, on February 5th, 2003, it says, Army to recruit legion of PCs to fight smallpox. Uncle Sam wants you to volunteer your computer's desktop in the fight against bioterrorism. Then it explains grid computing and what that is. And it says that the program was devised by Army medical researchers and was implemented by a small Texas company. The grid, which will be announced Wednesday, will sift through billions of molecules to find about 200 with the potential to fight smallpox. The company, United Devices Incorporated of Austin, is working with International Business Machines Corp., IBM. Volunteers can go to the website grid.org to download a small piece of software that works somewhat like a screensaver, activating only when the computer isn't being used. As soon as someone touches a key, the grid program shuts down, leaving all the resources of the computer for its user. One advantage to the Army is the cost. Volunteers don't get compensated with anything except the satisfaction of knowing that they may help fight smallpox. Hiring a supercomputer to do the job would cost in the tens of millions of dollars, United Devices says. United Devices grew out of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which has enlisted millions of PCs in 220 countries to analyze radio waves from space in a search for a pattern that might indicate efforts to communicate from other galaxies. No luck so far. Volunteer grids have been used previously to analyze anthrax and cancer cells. Now, what's not clear from either of these articles is this company, United Devices, are they the same company that came out with SETI Online or not? Are they just sort of emulating the same concept? I, that's not clear to me from this. But either way, the fact that this they're doing like a SETI online thing to work with the U.S. Army, you know, should give anyone pause who is running SETI online and they're on their computers like it was no big deal, you know, trying to help the search for alien life. When in fact, it could have just been some, you know, your your computer could have been used as a supercomputer to like murder people in the Middle East with drones. You don't know what the fuck it was being used for. <laughs> I mean, shit. And what's also interesting is Robert Malone a guy that we've talked about on Media Roots Radio before as being sort of this really signal-boosted, you know, supposed whistleblower of mRNA technology. He claims he was one of the inventors of it, even though he had a very small influence over its development. He was part of a program at DARPA, um, and I actually do not have the name of the actual program in front of me right now, but it is the name of a computer based program overall that's a supercomputer program that calculates which drugs might work for different viruses. And Robert Malone and his colleague, Michael Callahan, um, a guy who was really involved in the early outbreak of COVID-19 in Wuhan, they were running all these calculations and they had determined really early on that they believe Pepsid AC, an over-the-counter drug, famintidine, would be really effective against COVID-19 based on these computer simulations. So it kind of begs the question, why did Trump start pushing hydroxychloroquine so hard? Was that based on a computer calculation coming out of the same program or a similar program? What about ivermectin? Is that also 
coming from some kind of computer program calculation. I, I just, it makes me wonder where some of these other drugs are coming from. But this is the morning of this infamous Colin Powell UN Security Council Iraq War speech. And guess what he mentions in the speech? Yes, he mentions anthrax eight separate times for sure. And he holds up a prop vial of anthrax powder and juxtaposes, you know, that uh, amount of powder with the amount of powder that was in the anthrax letters in the real anthrax attacks. Again, not saying that Saddam did the anthrax attacks in October 2001, but making enough insinuations where that would be a conclusion that one might leave the speech with. Colin Powell mentions anthrax eight times, but he also mentions smallpox. He only mentions it one time, but you understand the gravity of smallpox if you're sort of in the know compared to a lot of the other things he's mentioning. And if Iraq has smallpox, I mean, compared to anthrax, smallpox is like, it's like having a nuke compared to, you know, some TNT. It's kind of game over at that point. We got to, we got to invade him then, you know, if they have smallpox. But let me refresh your memory on parts of Colin Powell's speech where he really sort of leans into this idea of dispersing virus, you know, using planes to disperse biological weapons, talking about Saddam Hussein developing anthrax, and then, of course, the coup de grace, Saddam Hussein developing smallpox. Oh, and then he also leads into this speech with a very, very crazy story that sounds like Saddam's troops throwing babies out of incubators in the first Gulf War. Remember that story? Well, listen to this sort of like story about the torture, you know, to try to silence these whistleblowers who are blowing the whistle on these mobile biological weapons labs. Ladies and gentlemen, these are sophisticated facilities. For example, they can produce anthrax and botulinum toxin. In fact, they can produce enough dry biological agent in a single month to kill thousands upon thousands of people. And dry agent of this type is the most lethal form for human beings. By 1998, UN experts agreed that the Iraqis had perfected drying techniques for their biological weapons programs. Now, Iraq has incorporated this drying expertise into these mobile production facilities. We know from Iraq's past admissions that it has successfully weaponized not only anthrax, but also other biological agents, including botulinum toxin, aflatoxin, and ricin. But Iraq's research efforts did not stop there. Saddam Hussein has investigated dozens of biological agents, causing diseases such as gas, gangrene, plague, typhus, tetanus, cholera, camelpox, and hemorrhagic fever. And he also has the wherewithal to develop smallpox. Now, I bet you don't remember Colin Powell actually mentioning smallpox in his infamous UN Security Council speech. But there it is. And what does he immediately associate this rant with? Well, the idea of biological mobile weapons laboratories. And also sort of veering into the crop duster anthrax hype that sort of actually started the WMD metonym. Colin Powell immediately pivots to this idea of Saddam being able to disperse these biological agents using specially designed airplanes. Now again, smallpox is the big enchilada. You rank all these things on a chart in terms of their dangerousness as a weapon in war, and smallpox is the big enchilada. And any policymaker, anybody who was in the know about bioterrorism or this bio 
terror game theorism uh, would know, you know, pretty much read between the lines that he was saying that Sanaa might have the big enchilada. And here's Colin Powell peppering his speech with a bunch of really specific claims about Saddam's mobile biological weapons dispersal methods. The Iraqi regime has also developed ways to disperse lethal biological agents widely, indiscriminately, into the water supply, into the air. For example, Iraq had a program to modify aerial fuel tanks for Mirage jets. This video of an Iraqi test flight obtained by UNSCOM some years ago shows an Iraqi F-1 Mirage jet aircraft. Note the spray coming from beneath the Mirage. That is 2,000 liters of simulated anthrax that a jet is spraying. In 1995, an Iraqi military officer, Mujahid Saleh Abdul Latif, told inspectors that Iraq intended the spray tanks to be mounted on a MiG-21 that had been converted into an unmanned aerial vehicle, or a UAV. UAVs outfitted with spray tanks constitute an ideal method for launching a terrorist attack using biological weapons. Iraq admitted to producing four spray tanks, but to this day, it has provided no credible evidence that they were destroyed, evidence that was required by the international community. There can be no doubt that Saddam Hussein has biological weapons and the capability to rapidly produce more, many more. And he has the ability to dispense these lethal poisons and diseases in ways that can cause massive death and destruction. Now, there's a PBS bioterrorism special that came out in like early 2002 that just basically paints Judith Miller as this heroic soothsayer, shows her going into the um, the Siberian uh, lab in like a hazmat suit looking around in there, all this kind of stuff. But what's interesting in that special is they shed some light onto basically what the reason was that the U.S. government became so sort of fixated on Iraq having biological weapons program. And it wasn't that we necessarily sold you know, there are, you know, people say that, you know, that Bill Hicks jokes about the receipts of the Iraqi chemical weapons. Well, it is true that we sold Iraq chemical weapons. That's true. And, and there was like an exchange of that. But when it comes to biological weapons, uh, that's a little more murky. But how is the U.S. intelligence so convinced that they had a program? Well, what it appears is based on the, what this PBS special says is that Iraq did order some samples of anthrax and other potential biological weapons from like a university database that would sell these things to foreign countries. But here's where the kicker comes in. The special doesn't mention anything about how clearly on some level the U.S. government must have allowed this to happen. Iraq wouldn't have been able to do this unless the U.S. government allowed it. So on some level, if Iraq did have any semblance of a biological weapons program at any point, in their country's history, it was essentially sanctioned by the U.S. government. So that's what's so fascinating about that. It's not just these chemical weapons that we supplied Iraq. It also seems like we allowed Iraq to possess aim strain, from what I've read, which is kind of wild. So maybe because there was some realism in terms of this, you know, there's like an unknown mystery horror quality here. It's like, what else could Saddam have been doing 
with this program that we basically allowed him to do. You know, what else was he doing underneath our noses? But then also there's all this talk that you can find, you know, I'm just sort of going back and forth now in my rant, but there's all this talk you can also find about how, well, there was a smallpox outbreak in Iraq in the early 70s. And well, if that was the case, then that means that the Iraqi government probably, you know, kept some of those smallpox virus infected objects, clothing, blankets, whatever, kept it in storage in a lab in the future hopes to turn it into a biological weapon. So there's also that in that's given in terms of like Iraq may have smallpox. So there's a lot of pathways in propagandistically to create that fantasy scenario. But I think overall, the point I'm trying to make in these Colin Powell comments is that the policymakers, the people who'd been fed all this, these intelligence briefings behind the scenes, the people who had gotten all this raw intelligence, that it was much more likely, I think, to work on them in a way than it was to work on the American public. All, a lot of those people were probably just instantly convinced that Iraq, you know, if there's any chance they have smallpox, it simply has gone to the level where now, like, I'm leaning towards taking them out. Like, 9-11 scared the shit out of me. The anthrax attack scared the shit out of me. I get these intelligence briefings. I'm a weak, you know, sort of uh, piece of meat in the room politician for the most part. And I am here as an instrument to basically, you know, validate these fears. Now, next on the timeline is an episode from Bill Moyers Now. Um, I don't really know how critical his program was against the Bush administration back in February 2003, uh, but the segment that runs on February 7th, 2003 seems fairly critical, and unfortunately, I only have the transcript of this segment. I don't have video of it, although it's got to be out there somewhere, and this video segment uh, is simul- is sort of a combination of talking about a second Patriot Act that's coming and also bracing for bioterror, weighing the cost of the smallpox vaccine. Now, the segment's actually very interesting. If you go back and read this February 7th, 2003 transcript of this Bill Moyers episode, you get a really interesting story also about a more stealth version of the Patriot Act that was being secretly pushed through that would allow some much crazier things than the Patriot Act allowed. Now, I don't believe that this bill ever actually got pushed through in the form that it was existed in back then, but what they tell you about in this special about what the Bush administration was also trying to push through is quite frightening. But we're not here to talk about that, even though that's you know newsworthy in the sense that it's happening at the same time as the smallpox bioterror vaccination rollout push. So again, this stuff all is sort of, I believe, meant to amp up the fear. It's just meant to be like, to just steamroll this shit through. The more afraid people are, the more we can steamroll this shit through, essentially. The more we can also steamroll the Iraq war through. Now, it's unclear from the way this transcript reads if this was, doesn't seem like Bill Moyers is actually in the segment himself, but another reporter, William Brangham uh, introduces this segment by saying, CIA reports state that Iraq, North Korea, and Iran may have possession of the smallpox virus. Now, I know I said this segment was critical. It doesn't sound too critical when it starts, right? It sounds very propagandistic. 
Then it shows, I guess, a, a clip of Jerry Hauer, Jerome Hauer, talking in the background. And then William Branham comes on again in the transcript and says, Jerry Hauer is one of the president's chief emergency managers, he says. Just that possibility is why we have to act now. The possibility of Iraq having smallpox. And then it goes to a part of Jerome Hauer in the transcript. We have a dictator in Iraq who possibly has the virus. We can't afford to take the chance that if this regime falls, that in the process he decides to do something horrific and we've done nothing to prepare for it. Then William Branham says, is there any intelligence that a smallpox attack is more likely now than it was, say, two years ago, five years ago? Jerome Hauer says, no, I think the potential for uh, an attack is not imminent. We have really no specifics that one is potentially near term. And then in the transcript, I guess they cut to a guy named Dr. William Schaffner, who says, there's a paradox, isn't there? Because everyone has said very consistently that the risk of a bioterrorist event is low, there is no new information, and there is no urgency. Yet we have a program that would suggest that the risk is greater than that, and there certainly is some urgency. Doesn't jibe, does it? No, it sure as fuck doesn't jibe. Doesn't jibe at all. And there's definitely a bizarre paradox, as the reporter said earlier in here, a paradox almost intentionally. Because why, again, would they be rolling out something this over the top and with this much infrastructure seemingly in place, at least with the millions of vaccines doses they've gotten manufactured, why would they be rolling this out and say, no, there's no worry about something like this happening. There's no threat. If there wasn't a threat, like the whole thing is just, it's a, it's a real fucking mindfuck. And that's pretty much what this Bill Moyer segment is honing in on here. William Branham, urgent or not, the old smallpox vaccine is coming out of deep freeze so America can begin a massive vaccinations program. The president's plan is entirely voluntary. It's broken down into three phases. Well, this is not true. It's not entirely voluntary. The military was already forced to get it. And this is an interesting tidbit about the amount of resistance uh, that it was already active against this program in the medical industry. It says, but a lot of medical professionals are saying that the president's plan has significant problems. In fact, at least 80 hospitals around the country have said they're not going to participate at all. Many that want to participate are having a tough time recruiting volunteers. That's a new figure I have not heard before. 80 hospitals refused to participate in it. Why? What were their stated reasons? Did they get any press or do they have any statements sent to the press? I haven't found any. On February 24th, 2003, there was a winter meeting at the National Governors Association in Washington, D.C., where several state representatives spoke and answered audience questions about the smallpox vaccination rollout program, how it was going, uh, what they needed, uh, etc. And it seemed very polite. There didn't really seem to be any serious revelations um, given out at this, except the common theme that was espoused was that they just need more money, that they're not getting enough money from the federal government to roll this out, um, which kind of goes in line with this idea that it was never that serious of a program to begin with. 
the federal government really was this concerned about a smallpox attack, you think they would have rolled this out in a much more serious fashion. Instead, you know, they kind of uh, did it with a lack of funds. Um, with all this money being injected into the biodefense sector, they just weren't giving enough funds to the states. They were trying to set up these programs. The National Governors Association is holding its winter meeting in Washington, D.C. Next, a discussion from that gathering on smallpox vaccination plans. The governors hear from representatives of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. Well, welcome. I'm Ann Beauchene. I'm the Director of Homeland Security and Emergency Management at the National Governors Association. I want to welcome you to NGA's special session on the National Smallpox Immunization Program. As you know, on December 13, 2002, President Bush announced the creation of the national program and ordered the Department of Defense to conduct a separate smallpox vaccination program for 500,000 military and civilian personnel who had been or may be deployed to high-risk areas. The Bush administration also outlined a voluntary immunization program that would take place in three phases. And phase one of that program started on January 24th. This morning, we will hear about the details of the program, how it's progressing, and discuss some of the concerns and challenges that states are dealing with. But Joseph Henderson, the associate director for the CDC at the time, speaks at this meeting. And he says something interesting. He says that the Bush administration doesn't actually plan to roll out the vaccine to anybody who wants it, to the public. But if you absolutely insist on getting it, and you're a member of the public, then they'll arrange something for you. It's a very weird uh, thing to say about a public policy. Uh, from what it sounds like, it sounds like there's just a lot of mixed messaging. It's still not clear if the government plans to make it fully available to the public, because it seemed as if that was the plan just about a month ago. Even Bush, you know, Laura Bush was saying that she wants her kids to take the smallpox vaccine. That sounded like it was going to be made available to everybody. And then the script changes, or it seems like it gets modified. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for attending this session on uh, smallpox preparedness. My role here on this distinguished panel is to provide some background on the national program. And I'm, I should say I'm very pleased to be here with, with George and Mary. I think you're going to get a pretty good understanding of, a, of the program as it pertains to the federal activities and the state activities and hearing more about uh, across the board on what's happening with smallpox activities from, from a variety of um, different states from George Hardy. Just to reiterate what Ann had already mentioned about the federal plan, the president made a decision on the 13th of December of, of 2002, actually, not 03, to vaccinate the civilian smallpox response teams, public health response teams, and healthcare response teams, to also vaccinate individuals in the Department of Defense, and to also vaccinate selected individuals who are in overseas assignments as they're associated with the Department of State. There was also um, a statement made in the president's decision that the general population would not be offered the vaccine at this time since the decision didn't warrant including the general population, but we would accommodate those individuals who insisted on receiving the vaccine. So I'll talk about some of these aspects of the program uh, that pertain to the civilian program uh, throughout my presentation. Again, now he's talking about the civilian program. Well, what do you, I mean, really, we got to fucking really break this down. You're saying that there's different phases for healthcare workers, frontline workers, different government workers. The military was already required to get this, but yet civilians aren't going to be able to get this. But there is a civilian program 
And civilians, well, they can get it if they just really, really demand it, if they're really insistent on it. I mean, what does this shit even mean? It's a complete fucking mess. It's all over the place. And it, I mean, it seems like a lot of these public health officials and bureaucrats were sort of just at the whims of the Bush administration, just putting its finger in the air and changing its mind like every single day on how this was going to go. Now we get to, I think, a particularly interesting journalist interview. She's a journalist. She's a writer for the Washington Post. She's a correspondent named Ceci Connolly. And she seemed to be sent to C-SPAN to sort of answer as many questions as possible and be sort of the explainer for what this smallpox vaccination program was. She's put in a position to basically explain more things than any single reporter has had to explain about this program to like an audience, first of all. And she also acknowledges some strange things, I think, in the segment, some revealing things maybe that had not been reported before. And also the segment starts with this not super surprising, but surprising for maybe you guys listening, revelation that this vaccination program has basically stalled, that it's gotten off to a very slow start, and it's essentially at a stall right now for one reason or another. They're not exactly sure why, but it seems like this program just kind of petered out. Now, this is how this segment starts. So Susan Swain of C-SPAN is just uh, sort of picking the brain of Cecil Connolly, and Connolly herself admits that she actually was vaccinated against smallpox. So if she had been vaccinated against smallpox, it begs the question how many other journalists were sort of brought into some inner sanctum, inner circle of Bush intelligence access to be like, you, you know, we're going to choose you guys to be on the front lines of this war on terror to get smallpox inoculation first um, and have them volunteer to do it. I mean, she couldn't have been the only one. So I'm going to play actually kind of a lengthy series of clips from this segment uh, because I think it's it's quite revealing and it just shows what journalists at the time actually thought about this program and basically how entrenched they were and how sort of enmeshed they were into the Bush brain trust of just automatically going along with this war on terror propaganda matrix without even giving it a second thought. Cece Connolly. <laughs> Thank you, my pleasure. Earlier this week, you reported that the Bush administration's one month ago call for half million volunteer healthcare workers to be immunized against smallpox is at a standstill. Would you give us more detail? Uh, the problem is that um, it has gotten off to a very slow start for many reasons. And the actual numbers of the half million, how many have been vaccinated thus far? Uh, well, when we reported this story uh, over the weekend, they were at 4,200 nationwide. My understanding is in the past few days, those numbers have, have crept up, and, and I think late today we'll get another update from the Centers for Disease Control uh, down in Atlanta. Good open up our phone lines. You can see the numbers to reach Cece Connolly right below her on the screen. We'll go to your calls in just a couple minutes about the smallpox vaccination program. Uh, you report in your story about what uh, the uh, government has learned about the 500 inoculations given to the uh, military personnel. What kind of incident rate of problems have there been? When last we checked in over the weekend, there were several hundred thousand military personnel that had been vaccinated. They had five 
uh, what would be termed serious or severe adverse events. There were, uh, as I recall, two cases of encephalitis, which is inflammation of the, uh, the brain. Another individual had uh, heart difficulty. In each and every one of these cases, the individuals were hospitalized for a brief period of time, but my understanding is now they are out, they are doing well. Of course, there have also been the very expected very common sorts of reactions, uh, some fever, itching, uh, that sort of thing, um, but in small numbers again. So that's a good sign. Well, it's not really a good sign considering that this is a very, very unnecessary vaccine given to all these young soldiers really for no reason, as a lot of them are probably afraid they're going to be sent to Iraq, which ended up actually happening, hyping them up into thinking that they're going to basically be attacked with bioweapons as a reason for getting this vaccine. We heard Jerome Hauer say in the previous Bill Moyer segment that he thinks that Iraq might retaliate with smallpox once they realize they're going to lose a war if we were to get into a war with Iraq, which we did. Now, it's just weird how flippant she sounds with this. This is several hundreds of thousands of soldiers have already gotten vaccinated, according to her, and there have only been five really, really dangerous a side effect reported among five different soldiers. Now, what's not a good thing is that these soldiers' names were never released to the public, as far as I know. You know, we get these stories that are coming out. I already read you a story earlier about brain inflammation and encephalitis of a soldier receiving the vaccine, but his name was never released. This soldier who got heart inflammation is doing fine, according to the Pentagon, and we're just supposed to trust it and not question it anymore. Well, let's go to some of the reasons that are uh, keeping the program from advancing more quickly. What uh, have you learned about that? Well, what you hear uh, from many in the medical community, and it really is a, a very impassioned, serious, thoughtful debate on both sides, is that when you're a physician or you're running a hospital or a health department, every single day you're trying to balance risk and, and uh, sort of a risk-benefit ratio. And for many of these physicians, they are saying that smallpox has not been seen on the earth in decades. Uh, we still are, are, do not have any sort of evidence that, that it is in enemy hands. That's certainly a fear, but there's nothing concrete. And this vaccine uh, is described as the most dangerous vaccine we have today. Now, I don't want to alarm people with the term dangerous. It's a, it's a relative thing. Pretty flippant, again, about people's concerns um, about this. Uh, she's basically trying to make sure that people don't think it's too dangerous, even though it is the most dangerous vaccine, as she says repeatedly. Either it's not dangerous or it's the most dangerous vaccine, which it is the most dangerous vaccine, which she says pretty much in that same paragraph of words. But then she goes on to reveal a much more understandable reason why a lot of these people wouldn't want to get vaccinated if it is the most dangerous vaccine. Politics aside, if you think a smallpox attack is coming or not, which, you know, why would you think one? But that completely aside, what's another really logical reason not to take this vaccine for a healthcare professional? Well, she says right here what that is. Other big stumbling point has been 
a compensation fund. Uh, what you are hearing from, from medical personnel all over the country is if by chance I'm one of the people that suffers one of these serious side effects, who will pay for my medical care? Who will pay if I, lo if I lose work time, uh, compensate my family? The Bush administration has debated this issue for many, many months, but so far has not been willing to set up any compensation. Bingo. I mean, again, the fact that the pharmaceutical companies were absolved in this Homeland Security bill and this little clause and I, that I read to you earlier in the episode that Jerome Hauer reinforced in that CDC memo back in January 2003. I mean, why would all these healthcare workers volunteer to do that? Unless you're a true believer in the bioterrorism possibility, unless you're a true dyed-in-the-wool Bush bootlicker believer at that time, which not everybody was, what would compel you to take this vaccine if there was not even a compensation possibility that there was zero liability for these companies and that the government would offer you nothing in return so all these soldiers who were forced to take it who knows how many of them actually got long-term serious side effects from this vaccine or myochondritis or you know encephalitis and suffered a great deal from it or got permanent brain damage from it and the pentagon just covered it up i mean we don't even know their names several hundred thousand troops were forced to take this smallpox vaccine and were offered zero compensation. So yeah, this is probably a big reason why the rollout program, the pre-event smallpox program, never really took off. But this next part's hilarious. A caller uh, asks this Washington Post reporter a really obvious question that up until this point, nobody has really asked out loud before, which is absolutely ridiculous. Taking Bush's word for this is just absolutely fucking crazy, if you think about it in retrospect. A caller actually calls in and asks the reporter if there's any proof that Bush actually took the smallpox vaccine himself. I have a question for Ms. Conley. Uh, you know, uh, President Bush took this uh, inoculation for uh, smallpox, but, you know, with all of the things that she's saying, that uh, there's fever and all of this, but... I thought it was rather odd that our president would put himself first, knowing that uh, possibility, you know, he might not make it. But I just don't understand. No one ever saw his inoculation. No one ever heard anything about it. And so I'm wondering, did Mr. Bush really, really take the shot? <laughs> well, we should probably hire you on as one of our investigative reporters. Those, those are great questions. Um, you are right. Uh, Those are great questions. You are right. Uh, what she's confirming is that we never really saw Bush do this. Well, we never saw him do it. We were told that he did it. This reporter tries to smooth things over a little bit by acting like, well, you know, we know these other officials also took the smallpox vaccine, but who she mentions also took the smallpox vaccine is also interesting and frankly also hard to believe. Is there proof that they also took the smallpox vaccine? Listen to the way that she answers or tries to answer this woman's question. 
Um, you're right. Uh, we are told by the White House spokesman that President Bush was inoculated by, in fact, one of the military doctors who is doing this and, and a real professional at it. Um, I, I don't have any information to suggest that that did not occur. I'm sure that President Bush, what, what he said publicly was that he was going to be immunized because he felt as commander-in-chief he wanted to show uh, the troops that he would not ask them to take a risk that he wasn't willing to take. Of course, there are many people who disagree. I could tell you that Mayor Bloomberg was vaccinated recently, I think for similar reasons. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld has been vaccinated recently. And in full disclosure, I have to tell you, so was I just about a month ago. Now, is there any evidence or proof that we have that Donald Rumsfeld or Michael Bloomberg actually got vaccinated for smallpox? And them saying that they got vaccinated, is that just merely part of the optics for this PR campaign, for this basically fear-mongering campaign that seems to be for the Iraq war? I mean, gee, it seems like it. But it's odd that she's saying she got vaccinated for smallpox already. Why? Why did she get vaccinated? But she's not planning to go to Iraq or anything like that. And as we find out, you know, later... Pretty much all the reporters who are embedded with the first troops that go to Iraq get vaccinated for smallpox. It's a requirement for them to. But this is odd what she sort of continues on with. She sort of implies again that, you know, this is going to be something that you're going to have to talk over with your physician to see what your risk profile is like. But she doesn't like specify as she, if she's talking only about the healthcare workers and first responders that are already being administered the vaccine during this this Bush program, or if she's talking about the civilian program that's still being discussed and hasn't been actually officially rolled out yet. The one that seems to keep getting conflated with and mixed with the program that's actually active on the books right now. So for as clear as this Washington Post reporter is trying to be, she herself is sort of mixing them together and not being really clear about what she's talking about here. Uh, in each and every one of these decisions, what I, I hope is going on and I think is going on is that people are consulting with their physicians. We know, for instance, that if you've been vaccinated previously, as most of us adults have been, that your risks are a little bit lower. You can also talk over with your physician if you fit any in, into any of those risk categories. So for many, many people, it, it's not going to be a risk, but you have to weigh that very carefully. Did you have any reaction? I'll tell you, uh, it itched like crazy for about four or five days, Susan, and that was it. I am just fine. And this is sort of an odd answer. Um, she's asked why she made the decision to get one. And she explains that she got one because of the fact that she covers this subject a lot. And if there was an attack, uh, that she wants to be there and be able to cover it, like vaccinated and safe from the disease, essentially. Almost like it's like a career strategy, like thinking ahead of the curve. So she'd be like the first reporter on the ground to report on like a smallpox bioterror attack. I mean, that's kind of how I interpret it. It's sort of weird. But then listen to how she got the vaccine quite odd. Why you made the decision to have one? Sure. Um, I felt that since I report on this subject so much, and if, again, heaven forbid, there were ever 
uh, an outbreak somewhere, I would, I would certainly be inclined to cover it, and I wanted to do the sensible thing. But again, I want to make clear, people making these decisions, uh, I think, are consulting with their doctors, as I did, and I also was part of a clinical trial here at the University of Maryland, so I really received a lot of extra medical screening and, and care and attention. A clinical trial at the University of Maryland? I mean, what a spook show. So basically, the Washington Post reporters were like plucked for this clinical trial to get vaccinated for smallpox. Like, we want you to be on the front lines of this bioterror war and help us cover this. I mean, what was the reasoning given to them? I can't imagine that the Washington Post approached the army and was like, hey, we want to get our you know reporters vaccinated for smallpox. Who can you get in to your program? I mean, if that's what happened, that would be rather odd, but she doesn't really go further than that in explaining it. Next is Pittsburgh. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> uh, I'm very concerned uh, because the White House has not provided any evidence that uh, anybody else has any smallpox out there. Um, also, they've provided no evidence that even if somebody did have smallpox, some terrorist or Saddam Hussein, that they could actually create an epidemic in America. Uh, it's very difficult to create an epidemic like this. I, I, when I studied uh, in public health school 20 years ago, we were told there was only two or three repositories in the whole world of smallpox. I think the World Health Organization had one, the U.S. had one, and the Russians, the Soviets had one. Um, also very concerned about this liability protection that for the manufacturer, who just happened to be a big campaign contributor to the Republicans. I wish I knew what he was talking about at the very end uh, of that comment, because uh, I'm sure that that's true. But, I mean, the liability protection thing is definitely true. I've already talked about that quite a bit, but I love it. I mean, I love that C-SPAN would let a caller call in and just blast her like this. I mean, he's not blasting her, he's blasting Bush, but it gets even better. Um, I mean, the Centers for Disease Control has been putting more resources into this issue, the smallpox, than they've done on tobacco since Bush has got into the White House. Uh, and I'm very concerned that this was all a hoax that's been cooked up by Karl Rove after seeing polls showing that 95% of Americans would be scared to death uh, if they were told they might get a smallpox epidemic out there. And they used this politically to help win the election. It was really touted in the three months before the election this October. And I just wanted... I'd like to know from CeCe what evidence and why aren't reporters out there asking the White House, how is this going to be spread? What methods could this be spread through America? How could this be done? And why are we undertaking this massive immunization program when there's absolutely no evidence that any of this disease exists? Uh, well, very good points, very good questions that, that I can assure you. We at the Washington Post and many other news organizations have been asking. I mean, the guy... It basically just calls the whole thing out as some kind of political hoax, um, which is fantastic. And uh, I love her, you know, response because she kind of struggles to respond, but she tries to be as polite as possible. But if you notice, it starts out a little defensively, actually, and she falls into a posture that I've heard a lot of reporters get on their high horse and defend themselves from before, which is basically making it seem like, yeah, we've already asked all these challenging questions. Like, yeah, we asked these questions. We we challenged the Bush administration. She's sort of basically saying that. That's code for that, which is bullshit. She knows she doesn't. On some level, it's like there's Stockholm syndrome. There's, you know, a complete denial of the fact that these people are just being basically stenographers for the Bush administration's propaganda at this point in time.
We had a, a very strong article in our newspaper several months ago by my colleague Bart Gelman uh, that um, after studying a great deal of the intelligence data and talking to people who read it every day, uh, saying that there, there was the prospect that a handful of other countries uh, may have this. But, but again, it's not a certainty. Uh, you had uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell at the UN uh, recently referring to Iraq's wherewithal uh, to have this virus and, and use it as a weapon. So it, there's not a certainty, but there certainly is alarm. I can tell you at the Department of Health and Human Services, the reason they say that there has been such emphasis put on smallpox is that although the likelihood is zero, it's, it's not zero, but not zero, but low. Although that likelihood is low of an attack, the consequences could be devastating. I mean, she sounds more like a neocon by the second. You know, this is straight up Bush era neocon 101 scaremongering idiocy that she's spouting off here. So she might sound like this friendly, you know, intelligent, nuanced Washington Post reporter at first, but then you find out she got smallpox vaccine because she thinks there's going to be an attack. And part of her evidence for refuting this guy or answering his question is that her, you know, Barton Gelman, this great reporter, you know, did this piece about how the CIA uh, said that an attack is not imminent. And they, you know, at first denied that Iraq might have smallpox, but then other insider sources said they did. So what that, what that really means is that there are people in the government who think this is really serious and it's a threat to be taken seriously and that, you know, the CDC... Uh, thinks that the chance is zero. You know, she accidentally says zero, uh, but that like fucks up and then has to like redo her whole thing. It's just like embarrassing and weird. And, and it just seems like really brainwashed. And she even mentions Colin Powell speech as if that's some kind of evidence. And with respect to the scenarios of how you could spread an epidemic like this, again, I, I want to be cautious here on television, and we try to be cautious in our, our news reporting. We don't want to give anyone ideas or sort of map out plans for them, but certainly uh, you hear discussed in public settings fairly routinely. If you had 10, uh, say, martyrs from some sort of terrorist organization or state who themselves became infected, you could spread it. You could get on airplanes. This is a contagious virus, or it was when it was around uh, several decades ago. And the difficulty with smallpox is, unlike, say, an explosion, you may not know initially if and when an attack has occurred. Probably the first indication would be people kind of calling their doctors or showing up at the hospital with sort of the worst flu they've ever imagined and then a rash and that sort of thing. I mean, that's straight up neocon think tankery, fantasy making, nightmare scenario type of stuff. It sounds like a Lori Milleroy type thing. You know, almost like a slow motion 9-11, 10 martyrs, she said, 10. You know, it's like 9-11 was an unprecedented, uh, if you want to believe the official story, let's take it to face value. It was a completely unique 19 people willing to kill themselves in a spectacular attack. I mean, has that ever happened again in the United States, anywhere? Where else has that happened again? I mean, getting 10 people would be difficult. So it's just such a crazy uh, fantasy type scenario that she's weaving here. You know, like these people are human bombs. They're suicide bombers, basically, because they're carrying smallpox on purpose to create a pandemic. And then I'm just going to play you one final clip from her appearance where she 
talks about how if there is one single case of smallpox anywhere in the United States, there will be an emergency containment bioterrorism response plan that will be put in place because it will be assumed that this is a deliberate release, which is pretty crazy to think about. That, Like, how do we know? Maybe there's some smallpox somewhere in some ice in Alaska or in the Klondike or like wherever, and it gets released and somebody gets infected and brings it back. So the government's just going to assume it's bioterrorism and just like act like idiots and not actually try to figure out how it got caused. I mean, that's fucking stupid. But that's apparently what she's saying. Take a listen. It's a single confirmed case of smallpox, not just in the United States, but probably almost anywhere in the world, they will assume that it's not naturally occurring, that it is a criminal act, and they will move fairly rapidly to begin speedy vaccination. Now, there will be some targeting. If, for instance, uh, it's in a specific city, there will be rapid attention focused first on that city and, and that area. But, um, but you're absolutely right. It would be that single case that would begin to trigger a very fast response. Actually, I lied. I'm going to play you one more clip. Uh, this last clip of her is her just talking about how the states all submitted their post-event vaccination plan to the CDC. Remember that deadline I was talking about? Well, she's talking about how the states all submitted their plans. And then she sort of throws shade on some states to make it seem like their plans were overly ambitious. Well, it's like, what do you expect? I mean, if this really was a, a, a real threat, you would think that they would get the funding or get the amount of resources they really needed. And as I was saying earlier, a lot of these states would later express confusion or frustration over basically feeling like the federal government wasn't taking it seriously. With respect to is there a plan, uh, there's debate over that. There's certainly, all of the states have filed plans for mass vaccination of the entire population to the CDC. Most of those plans look at a week to 10 days for vaccinating. And uh, some of them are awfully ambitious um, at this point. Now, I think this next Bush speech, where he again pushes Project BioShield, and asks for money uh, for this biodefense military-industrial complex to fight bioterror. Uh, what's interesting to me, what's most interesting, is not that part of it, but what he doesn't say. And I think that because this speech, which takes place on February 28, 2003, at the Homeland Security Department, next to Tom Ridge, it's really interesting because this is you know only a, a few weeks after news started to come out saying that the smallpox program had sort of stalled and was fizzling out and it seemed like a failure. You know, it seemed like it was really important to Bush for a bit. He was going to get inoculated, he said, which was probably a lie. He didn't. That C-SPAN caller was dead on. This, it was all probably a hoax. That other C-SPAN caller, totally bullseye. Um, but listen to how Bush doesn't even mention smallpox. He mentions other diseases that Project BioShield and the su supplemental money he's asking for are going to help combat. But he, he skips smallpox, and I find that very interesting. Take a listen. Right now, we're going to show you President Bush's remarks to employees of the Homeland Security Department. Over the past 18 months, we have significantly enhanced our national stockpile of critical drugs, vaccines, and other medical supplies. 
Supplies from this stockpile can be delivered wherever they are needed, anytime in this any anywhere in this country, within 12 hours. I've nominated a good man, Dr. Charles McQuarrie, to head up this effort. His team is engaged in a major effort to develop and deploy the technologies for detecting weapons of mass destruction. And as part of the BioWatch initiative, we're deploying early warning sensors around the country to help detect potential biological attacks. This week, I sent to Congress my proposal for Project BioShield, a major research and production effort to guard our people against bioterrorism. I've requested nearly $6 billion for this project to quickly make available effective vaccines and treatments against agents like anthrax, botulinum toxin, Ebola, and plague. We must assume that our enemies would use these diseases as weapons. And we must act before the dangers are upon us. I urge the Congress to pass this legislation as soon as possible. So I think this shows that the weapons of mass destruction narrative wasn't just incentive to get us into the Iraq war. It was also incentive to get this money injection that Bush was really gunning for, for Project BioShield. I mean, listen to the diseases that he does list. I mean, yeah, he doesn't mention smallpox and possibly because at that time it was actually politically hurting him that this program was rolling out so poorly. So he omitted it. But he does mention like pretty much in the same order, botulinum toxin, anthrax, you know, just like Colin Powell does in his Iraq war speech. So clearly this is meant again to link to the Iraq war, you know, to create some fear. But it's also meant to, you know, drum up interest in this in this uh, program, this biodefense program. Now, I should just mention here that we're getting awfully close to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And seemingly to turn the tide on the stall, as they called it, in the smallpox vaccination rollout program via the Bush administration, the Bush administration announces a smallpox vaccine victims compensations fund, finally. Um, something that they obviously should have done from the very beginning. If, as they say, this is the most dangerous vaccine and there would be definitely a percentage of people who could have very serious side effects, um, it seems insane that they wouldn't have just offered this from the very beginning. Uh, so again, it, it, I think it kind of speaks to the non-seriousness of this actually being a real plan. I know I sound like a broken record at this point, but you know they couldn't fork over couple of hundred thousand dollars for potential victims of the vaccine at the beginning. And Bush is out there, you know, asking for $6 billion for Project BioShield. It's absolutely fucking ridiculous. An article from Associated Press, March 4th, 2003. Bush Compensation Smallpox Vaccine Victims Fund. After months of delay, the Bush administration is proposing a compensation fund for people injured by the smallpox vaccine trying to plug the most prominent hole in its inoculation program. The proposal, which Congress would have to approve, is based on a similar compensation package now available to police officers and firefighters injured on the job. Under the plan, the government would pay $262,100 for each person who dies 
or is permanently and totally disabled by the vaccine. Those less severely injured could receive up to $50,000 plus medical expenses. So what does that mean? You know, short of, a, of an actual critical injury, sort of someone dying or becoming permanently disabled, those people get the same amount of money. Well, the people who are dead don't get the money because they're dead. Uh, it would be obviously going to their families. I'm assuming what that means. But if you get totally disabled, permanently disabled by the vaccine, you also get $262,100. I mean, even by uh, you know 2003 standards, that's awfully low. I mean, come on. Uh, the woman who spilled coffee, got really hot scolding coffee spilled on her lap at McDonald's. I think she got over a million for that lawsuit. This is what the government's offering. It's pittance. And then the next tier down, $50,000 for those less severely injured, less severely injured. So anything, I guess, below that uh, only gets $50,000. So what does that even mean? So what if you get blinded? Is that considered permanent disability? Because apparently vaccinia can cause a permanent blindness in some people if they accidentally touch their eye with it. Like when you get the smallpox inoculation, um, you know, needle pokes, you're not supposed to touch your eye after you touch the area. You could be blind from it. Um, and I think I've already gone over that uh, in this podcast. So, And first, it's, this gets announced just on paper. There's no speech about it. Bush doesn't say anything about it. Um, it just gets announced as a press release. The next day, they actually do a real press conference. And Tommy Thompson leads this press conference. It's on C-SPAN. The Smallpox Vaccination Compensation Fund. Uh, they take questions. Um, Tommy Thompson talks. Julie Gerberding, uh, the director of the CDC, talks. A senator named Judd Gregg talks as well. And there's also a very short CBS News segment from that same evening, or actually maybe it's from the 6th of March, I'm not sure. 5th of March, 6th of March, I'm not exactly sure, but there's, there's a CBS news segment with Dan Rather where he talks about this. Here's the clip from CBS News. The Bush administration is trying to give a shot on the arm to its smallpox vaccination plan. Relatively few healthcare or other emergency response workers have actually taken the vaccine because in some few cases it can cause serious side effects, even death. The government is now proposing some limited financial compensation for any vaccine-related deaths or disability. Now here's a clip from the March 6, 2003 press conference hosted by Tommy Thompson, Secretary of Health and Human Services. Now I was actually wrong about the date. It wasn't March 5th. This was March 6th. But the way this press conference starts is really hilarious. It's sort of an illustration of just the hysteria of the war on terror, the orgasmic almost ecstasy over just this, you know, circle jerk of fear. And, you know, what basically was like a fire sale for all these bio defense and, you know, surveillance companies and all this stuff. So Tommy Thompson starts out the press conference by praising uh, U.S. Senator Judd Gregg, who's also there, I guess, to talk about this smallpox vaccine compensation fund. And he just like, you know, gives him a blowjob over the fact that he's the most pro-war on terror, bio-terror focused like U.S. senator in the Senate. And it's just like, again, it just seems like inappropriate. This is like a, a press conference that's seemingly supposed to be for victims of the vaccine who basically volunteered to take it already. I don't even know if this is for soldiers specifically. Again, soldiers did not have a choice. Uh, they were forced to take the vaccine. 
But take a listen to this. Health and Human Services Secretary Tommy Thompson announced a plan yesterday to compensate health workers who are vaccinated against smallpox and develop severe disabilities or even die as a result. The director of the Centers for Disease Control and Senate Health Committee Chairman Judd Gregg joined Secretary Thompson for this 35-minute news conference. Very appreciative that you all showed up here at this uh, press conference, and I certainly would like to uh, take this opportunity to welcome United States Senator Judd Gregg, uh, who uh, I had the privilege to serve with as a governor and uh, who has uh, just done an outstanding job as first as a governor and now as United States Senator. Senator, and he is uh, certainly the leader in the Senate in our war on terrorism, as well as securing our homeland. He uh, has just uh, been a, a stalwart and a very courageous individual in this regard and has led the effort uh, for, many, for many years in the Senate on bioterrorism preparedness, and I really would like to thank him for his leadership on that and for coming over here today. I appreciate the fact that he's taken time out of his busy schedule to come here. Now, I just want to give you a taste of how this guy sounds, Judd Gregg, a U.S. senator from New Hampshire. You may have never heard of him. Um, and he sounds like a crazy neocon. I don't know if he ever associated with the PNAC people because I've simply never heard of this guy. But just listen to what he says about why this smallpox program exists. And he just basically just ties it directly into the Iraq war propaganda trajectory. And the best way to neutralize this weapon is to have Americans vaccinated in a way that uh, makes it, gives very little utilitary use to the weapon. If enough people are vaccinated, uh, especially in our key communities, such as health providers and first responders, then it's unlikely that the folks who might want to use this weapon will use it against us because they'll recognize that the capacity to do harm will be significantly muted. Well, we also understand that uh, there are concerns about being vaccinated. I think the concerns fall into two categories. First, there is a sense that there is there's a lack of sense of the immediacy of the threat. This is natural. We're a big country and we always give people the benefit of the doubt. And I, I suspect there are very few people in this nation who can conceive that somebody might use a weapon like this against anyone. Unfortunately, it is, it is out there as a weapon, and we have seen, at least in the case of Saddam Hussein, that he is willing to use, and people like him are willing to use weapons uh, such as uh, that are biological or chemical against people. Uh, he used them against his own people, not smallpox, but chemical weapons, and against the Iranians. And we only read, need to re read the words of uh, Osama bin Laden, who has said, specifically, in an interview, in 1999, that should he obtain weapons of mass destruction, chemical or biological, that it would be his obligation to use them as he sees it in order to defend his perception of his cause, uh, and that he intends to use them against Americans. Again, he has used that language. So we are at risk. The weapon does exist, regrettably, and it is something that we must address. Now, notice he's sort of taking this high horse approach to this, almost like acting like, yeah, I completely understand why the general public, you know, they're ignorant, they're naive, they don't understand how, you know, we've we've sort of gone through all these different calculations and tabletop exercises for smallpox. Uh, but the weapon's out there, and we know that terrorists like Saddam Hussein have it, so it's out there, and we have to address it. 
acting as if, you know, it's just a matter of fact, neocon game theory 101. Yeah, the public doesn't understand it, but we understand the danger of this. And I'm just going to lay it out real matter of factly for you because this is how we think. We're fucking nuts. We're neocon psychos. Now, he does address the second part of that, which is that the reason why he thinks people aren't taking this seriously enough is because there isn't compensation. Maybe he's right about that. But it seems awfully underhanded to be like, well, let's just offer compensation many months down the road just because this shit got really stalled. We need the numbers to look good. We need the amount of people vaccinated to look good on paper to be like, we succeeded in this program. I mean, I think it's a very self-serving thing. Otherwise, they would have done it from the very beginning. They're offering not very much money anyways for people who die from side effects. So let that sink in. But the way Tommy Thompson sort of concludes this is being like, yeah, well, now that we've offered compensation, you got to get it. It's a great program. Go get your smallpox vax. Go get the jab. Thank you very, very much, Senator Greg. I also would like to quickly point out that the legislation we're going to be introducing is retroactive to the day the the vaccines were started, the vaccinations, so that uh, people will be covered. So people should have any of their fears allayed by the fact that it's retroactive and we'll be able to take care of them. And so people should certainly sign up and because this legislation is going to pass. Now, I found an actual story by that Washington Post writer, Ceci Connolly, who appeared on C-SPAN, and I played you all those clips from her appearance. Uh, I found a story of hers from the same day this press conference was held called Dream Team of Scientists Prepares for Worst. Group focuses on emergency response. Long before there was Code Orange, the renewal of smallpox inoculations, or a presidentially decreed war on terror, Jerome Hauer and a handful of counterterrorism experts were painting doomsday scenarios. People would look at us like we were crazy, recalled Hauer, 52, who helped create New York City's emergency management office. They'd look at us like we were hysterical fanatics screaming the sky was falling. Now Hauer and his hand-picked team at the Department of Health and Human Services are paid to think bleak thoughts. And if it were not for the serious nature of their work, they might just be saying, we told you so. For years, this disparate group spread across the military, academia, and FBI has tried to sound the alarm. Members have the journal articles and congressional testimony to prove it. But it wasn't until fall 2001 when Al-Qaeda and anthrax made domestic terrorism a reality that Health and Human Services devoted major resources to the threat of biological, chemical, and nuclear attacks. It became apparent we were totally unprepared, said D.A. Henderson, the epidemiologist who arrived at the department a few weeks after the first anthrax death in Florida. First alone and then joined by Hauer, Henderson started assembling what has evolved into a new Office of Public Health Emergency Preparedness. The office, which comprises what HHS Secretary Tommy Thompson describes as a, quote, dream team of scientists. Is she just basically talking about these scaremongering power of nightmare neocons who form this, quote unquote, disparate group spread across the military, academia, and the FBI? I mean, it kind of almost sounds like she is. So she's really sort of heaping praise on these people, these doomsayers, who are doomsaying basically for money and more control. So that, I think that really says a lot about her and what kind of journalist she probably is or was. Now, I found a paper submitted by a student named Christopher Milliken at the Harvard Law School on March 8th, 2003, where he's 
writing an in-depth proposal for a smallpox vaccine injury compensation program. Now, I have no idea if this paper had any influence at all. It seems like it probably didn't. I don't know if this got around very much, but it did seem like there was already pressure building in many other sectors for something of this kind, especially after the PR disaster of its stalling. Uh, they, that's when it seemed like they decided to initiate, get the ball rolling on something. But this paper really doesn't lay out any specific uh, monetary amounts that should be given out to smallpox victims. But you know, we already know that there must have been pressure building for them to decide to put this process into place so late into the rollout. Now, things are starting to get more escalated, not between Iraq and the United States, because Iraq really wasn't doing anything at all. <laughs> but I just mean escalated in the sense that the U.S. was itching for war and basically already decided it was going to go, even though the U.N. weapons inspections weren't finished yet. So basically, the U.N. Security Council put up a resolution by the United States that gave Iraq seven days to disarm or else they would basically face mass murder. On March 10, 2003, France and Russia announced that they are going to veto the UN Security Council resolution. Now, by vetoing this, it wouldn't pass. So essentially, the United States at that point had already decided internally, the Bush administration clearly had decided that it was going to go about this without the UN. And it did seem like, in a way, this was just sort of a head fake on the U.S.'s part anyways, to put up a resolution. They didn't really care either way. They were dead set on invading Iraq. But here's some very strange timing, actually, especially when you consider, you know, how there does seem to be an eerie, you know, geopolitical information war being waged against China in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Because on March 12th, 2003, the WHO issued a global alert about what they called a new infectious disease of unknown origin in both Vietnam and Hong Kong. Three days later, on March 15th, the WHO issued what they called a heightened global alert about now the disease, which they described more specifically as a mysterious pneumonia, and it got the case definition of SARS. Cases in Singapore and Canada were also identified. When they issued this alert, it included a very rare warning, travel advisory to international travelers, healthcare professionals. The CDC at this time also issued a travel advisory saying that persons considering traveling to Hong Kong, Singapore, Vietnam, or China should not go. On March 17, 2003, the UK, the US, and Spain abandoned their attempt to secure a second UN resolution authorizing force. And on the same evening, George W. Bush goes live on television from the White House, from the Oval Office, and gives Saddam Hussein and his sons 48 hours to leave Iraq or face war. Now, just for some context of how long before this, Congress voted overwhelmingly to authorize Bush to go to war in Iraq. That happened all the way back in October 11th, 2002. So almost like on the year anniversary of the 2001 anthrax attacks is when that vote took place, around that time. And here we are on March 17th, George W. Bush issuing the final 48-hour warning after he was basically head-faking and didn't give a shit either way if the UN voted on this. They were already gunning for war, 
They already wanted to go in, and this was the moment. Now, it kind of begs the question, would Bush have invaded if Saddam and his sons left? Like, what if uh, what if Saddam Hussein and, and both of his sons actually called Bush's bluff and, like, exited the country in a very, like, public way so everybody was, like, sure that they were gone? You know, what would the Bush administration have done then? Would they have been like, well, actually, there's st- still a bunch of, like, Iraqi Baathist forces in Iraq, and we got to go in anyway, so, like, we're just going to go in. I mean, they would have still figured out a way to go in, but it is still interesting that they actually had a demand that if you do this, we will not invade. Probably complete bluff. Now here's a clip from Bush's 48-hour warning. Events in Iraq have now reached the final days of decision. In recent days, some governments in the Middle East have been doing their part. They have delivered public and private messages urging the dictator to leave Iraq so that disarmament can proceed peacefully. He has thus far refused. All the decades of deceit and cruelty have now reached an end. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. Their refusal to do so will result in military conflict commenced at a time of our choosing. For their own safety, all foreign nationals, including journalists and inspectors, should leave Iraq immediately. We are now acting because the risks of inaction would be far greater. Just 48 hours later, the U.S. military launches its invasion and aerial bombardment of Iraq. George W. Bush gets on television again to announce the start of the invasion. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. To all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East, the peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. The people you liberate will witness the honorable and decent spirit of the American military. America faces an enemy who has no regard for conventions of war or rules of morality. Saddam Hussein has placed Iraqi troops and equipment in civilian areas, attempting to use innocent men, women, and children as shields for his own military, a final atrocity against his people. We will pass through this time of peril and carry on the work of peace. We will defend our freedom. We will bring freedom to others, and we will prevail. May God bless our country and all who defend her. Ridiculous human shield assertion in there, to say the least. Basically absolving the U.S. of any immediate, you know, high toll, death toll civilian casualties. When you look at the footage of the bombing that I'm about to play you, I mean, must have been an enormous amount of civilians who had died in those initial bombings, even though they claim they were just targeting the Baathist headquarters or strongholds or whatever. But of course, George Bush had to say that he's doing this from civilian areas so that 
a bunch of civilians die, it's Saddam's fault because he was using them as human shields, the classic line. But I guess ultimately, this series is about the specific narrative about smallpox bioterrorism. And in this episode, I've shown you a lot of stuff about how that was used in conjunction with our ramp up to the Iraq war. So I guess the remaining question is how pivotal was smallpox fear-mongering and smallpox in the decision-making process to go into Iraq? How much did it shape all of the lawmakers' thinking who voted for the Iraq war? I suppose we'll never know, but hopefully in this podcast series, I've tried to show you everything kind of from a slightly new perspective to maybe just, you know, ask more questions moving forward about how much of this was actually instrumental in the way that the Bush administration sold and executed the Iraq war. But here's Dan Rather on CBS News reacting to the very beginning From of the CBS invasion. News headquarters in New York, here is Dan Rather. It was just over 90 minutes beyond President Bush's deadline for Saddam Hussein to leave Iraq that U.S. warships and planes, there were F-117 stealth bombers involved, launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. The attack came in waves, cruise missiles, followed by the F-117 stealth bombers with so-called bunker-busting bombs. Their target, a bunker believed to be sheltering what are called top leaders of the Iraqi regime. Now, this is what it looked and sounded like in Baghdad. It was this short, and this is what happened. begins. Operation Iraqi Freedom. Shock and awe. I hope you enjoyed listening to the fourth installment of our ongoing series on smallpox bioterrorism. The episode you were listening to is titled W fakes taking the smallpox vax and Project Bioshield on the eve of war. And thank you again for being a subscriber to our Media Roots Radio Patreon. We really couldn't be doing this amount of research and content without your support. So just want to thank you again for that. And if you are a subscriber, please do not hesitate to message us directly on Patreon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.
Mm-hmm.